A hunter is no one's subject, but the master of all he surveys. The lead player in a savage symphony of pursuit and flight. The initiator of a dance of predator and prey. It is a ritual whose passage is written in blood, inscribed into the very molecules of sentient life, a perpetual river that feeds the insatiable ground. The hunter does not write his life script, but he is its protagonist and the figure who initiates the action. His prey is the object of his pursuit, its successful butchery being the only true terminus of the hunt. In the animal kingdom, hunting is all instinct, all hunger and fear, but men know they're partaking in a primal ballet, painting a portrait of their conquest in blood. Wielding a gun, a hunter can strike instantly, anywhere in his plane of vision. The sight on a gun frames the world like the sight on a camera, and with a click, the object can be possessed and framed forever on camera or perhaps mounted on a wall, an eternal testament to the power and dominion of the victor and the subjection and abjection of the ill-fated victim. This is the golden age of serial murder. Okay, so this is the golden age of serial murder. And uh, <coughs> this episode... Uh, actually only tangentially refers to hunting, but it's one of the things that, um, that characterizes this, this case as being fairly uh, particular and unique. Um, and it is the case, uh, the murders, uh, of, uh, and, uh, and assaults of, um, Robert Hansen, known as the butcher baker. I don't think that's a particularly good nickname, but Robert Hansen, um, was a serial killer who in the 70s and, and early 1980s um, was known for, um, for alluring or abducting uh, prostitutes uh, in Anchorage, Alaska, and then uh, keeping them at, at, in, in, a, in, in a, um, some sort of cabin or, or, or house for a while before flying them out to a remote location and then... Um, Letting them go and hunting them uh, like game, and um, and you know like like the like the uh, the the way the hunter makes uh, sailors his prey in the famous. Said yeah, this this case only is tangentially about hunting, but that's one of the things that distinguishes it, because um, you don't see that that often. Too many serial murder cases. Um, Serial murder cases, I mean, serial murder generally is done with a hands-on approach. They want something intimate and controlled. I think in the case of Robert Hansen, the hunting is part of showing his control. And I think a lot of these, this murder, the murder is really about control because, uh, uh, because, you know, I mean, I mean, all these guys are about power and control, but it particularly, I think that the reason hunting is added to the picture, it's about, it's about, uh, proving, uh, a guy who had very, very little, early on control in his own life, who was the kind of a, um, a tool of other people, a bullying victim in, in, in high school, uh, a guy who can get some dominion and control over the world he lives in uh, by, through hunting. But yeah, Robert Hansen, um, I think I've said this, but before this was, um, before the, the recording cut out, but Robert Hansen, um, in in the in the seventies and nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties, um, killed 
uh, he, he lured and abducted prostitutes um, and kept them at a, a house or cabin for a while where he would uh, hold them in a, in a room, um, a room that was usually adorned with various uh, instruments of taxidermy, various, various heads that were stuffed of, of, of animals. And I think to, to instill a sort of a sense of, of, of fear, uh, but in many ways the, the victim would go on to join them. He didn't, he didn't keep any heads of his victims, but, um, after he was done raping and abusing them, Robert Hansen would, um, fly his, some of his victims in his, in a small, in a small uh, uh, airplane that he had, a miniature, those little miniature planes that you can fly out for hunting, for hunting trips or, you know, across a, a lake as there are many of those in Alaska. And, and then he would let them go and hunt them. Robert Hansen, um, was, uh, a, uh, he was originally from a small town in Iowa. He wasn't from Alaska, but like, like, um, some other people, not many, but some other people he would seek, he would seek a kind of a new life and, uh, new frontiers in what has been described, I think, pretty accurately as the last true wild West in America, Alaska, for those who don't know, is enormous. It's twice the size of Texas, at least. I think something like 560,000 square miles. It's uh, it's it's extremely wild. Very little of it is passable except by plane. And there are very few people who live there. Anchorage is the capital of Alaska, but it's really kind of, especially in the 1970s, was an oil boom town. It had some, some um, it had a lot of prostitution, as you often see in these in these boom towns. Still to this day, you see that in the Dakotas, but it's um, it's not really it's it's there are not a lot of people in Alaska. Alaska is a very forbidding landscape. It's very cold. It's very wild. There's uh, some there's incredibly big bears, polar bears, and then Kodiak uh, brown bears, the biggest brown bears in the world. It's it's got wolves. It's got you know all manner of stuff. It, and and uh, it's it is it is not for the faint of heart. And the thing is, that Robert Hansen uh, went up to Alaska, like I think how a lot of people went out to to the west and the contiguous United States to find a to find a new life. We covered the Hillside Stranglers, one of which Kenneth Bianchi is not unlike Robert Hansen um, earlier, and they left Rochester, New York, to try to find a new life in Southern California. Alaska doesn't have the you know, it's not the pastures of heaven. It's 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 not um, it's not it's not it's not you know the beachfront property will not be the same as in Southern California. But um, and the only the only bikini clad women you'll find are in strip clubs. But the thing is, is that Alaska is is very much the last frontier. As I said, very wild, very rugged, very formidable climate, and some of the year it's it's all dark and. Um, Robert Hansen grew up in a small town in Iowa. He was a, I think, first generation American because his father was from Denmark, and he came grew up in a really strict family. The kind of the kind of family that we'll see covered a little bit in a much more extreme way, actually, when we get in our second follow up series to to this current uh, podcast series when we cover uh, Carl Panzram, who was the son of a very grim German. Um, dirt farmers there's something about people who come from northern europe even in the late latter part of the 20th century that that there is a very strict ethic and a very strict sort of conformity and and uh christian robert hansen's father 
was an immigrant from Denmark, and he, like Carl Pants. Okay, so uh, so Robert Hansen was born in Iowa on February fifteenth, nineteen thirty nine. He was the eldest of Hansen's family's cho- children. Uh, as you just stated, Christian Hansen, his father, was a short-tempered, domineering man from Denmark, and he was a baker, which is the profession that yeah, his he, son and, would and, and Christian, be forced uh, to take up. Like many, uh, like many parents have done, that you know, many fathers of sons, in particular, uh, you know, insisted that his son work for very little of any pay. Uh, and you know, very grueling hours in his bakery growing up. Even getting him up at two o'clock in the morning to uh, to bake for several hours before he went to school. And this is a, a, like Carl Panzer and working on on a dirt farm. It seems less necessary for um, for a successful uh, baker uh, in in the, in the later part of the twentieth century as opposed to the nineteenth century uh, because because. Um, you know, but I think part of this was is that Christian was instilling a very st- strong work ethic and a very strong sense of that. You know, he's the boss, and and you work for me, and and this is also something a lot of people who you know, not just the old country. You know, I I've known people who've grown up on you know in in places in the Midwest. You know, you're just sort of on a farm. You're 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 farm labor. Yes, you're their kids or whatever, but you 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 your job you have a job and your job is to do is to work for your parents' uh, organization, and but he didn't choose this. And even though uh, um, Robert Hansen would become a proficient baker, would go on, would go on to uh, be a ba- uh, to be a professional baker himself, run his own bakery, um, like his dad, it was never a sense of accomplishment and personal self esteem. It was never a sense of anything that he was proud of or felt like he had any sense of, of achievement or power. Uh, it was just an extension of his father's domination and control over his life. And in this way, I think Robert Hansen's similar, I think, to a number of serial killers we've got into or will get into. Wait, Simeon, did you, did you know yes, that they it's, were it's they lived in little, I mean, Pocahontas, Iowa? My, my half-sister grew up in Iowa. Um, I've but, never heard of it. I don't know, I don't know where, where the town. It's a tiny town. It's not. It's it's known for having like a. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of towns like in that. the fifties. It, it only had two thousand people in You know, it's not uncommon. It... <laughs> it's like people were talking about walkable cities and stuff, and and it's like. I like I, I like places. The place I grew up in and the places <laughs> I've lived have always been incredibly small. And I do not own a car. You know, I I have like maybe five driving lessons in in, in my life. I just can't imagine any of these places. Because like I was watching um, the first season of True Detective, and anytime I think about like Pocahontas, Iowa, or Anchorage, Alaska, I just think about yeah. that, and it's just it's quite. Like, it's a little bit depressing, actually. Well, you you go, you go anywhere that far, you know, anywhere more like an, an hours drive or two hours drive away. I say two hours drive away from any city in America, and you will see the, an endless expanse of this. And particularly in the Midwest, you go to the American Midwest, and you just see endless expanses of waves of corn or or other farmland, and it's just 
goes on forever. And that's Iowa is known for that, um, you know, for, for these endless just sort of the, the, the amber waves. It just goes on forever. This is I mean, England is pretty small. Um, you could walk across the country in not that long. I mean, whereas when you get into America, you you uh, it, it go there. You get to places like in Iowa where you could just drive and for, you know, seemingly for days. It just you could go on. It, it's really drawn out. I mean, there are rural areas, you know, um, in in. You know, in 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 the Northeast, and you know, in New England, that are like that. Oh yeah, the the, the Olsen uh, twin sister, uh, Elizabeth Olsen, the one yeah. who, yeah, the one who's made it as an actress. She 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 started in the movie that would follow follow the cults in in upstate New York, and it felt like it was like yeah thousands of miles from New York City, but it was New York, right? And it was just like Martha. It was Marcy almost Appalachian. Martin, yeah. Yeah. Marcy, yeah, it was almost Appalachian. It was like. There's so many places in on the United States that you can get lost in. So many places that are so far away from from people, you know. And then I guess these are the kinds of places that Robert Hansen. Yeah, I mean grew up that in. tends to be where, where where cults are because it's out of the way. But it's also it is where he 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 grew up in. But there is something different. I think when you go to Alaska, where it's really its own little world. I think honestly, Hawaii is too. Even though you know. That the Amer- when people when Americans conceive of ourselves is really we're thinking of the lower forty eight and often we're just thinking of our own area, um, but Alaska is off on its own. The difference with Iowa is is you're you're kind of segmented off in a particular place of farmland and flat land, but it is still its own. Whatever community you're in is where you're you're going to be. And Robert Hansen grew up having a horrible experience in the community he grew up in, and. I think Alaska represented another place that's remote and that's rural, but a place that's far away from everything. And also a place where you can have isolation and some level of control over that. Because much of, unlike Iowa, which is, you know, it's it's flat land. Alaska, as I said, is mostly navigable only by plane. It is not, there's very little of Alaska that even can be navigated by a car. Anchorage, you can't, but Anchorage is an oil, is, is essentially built around the oil industry it's got a little bit of a city now. It didn't even have an airport, I don't believe, in, in, in the 1970s. The thing is... It's, fu- it's funny. I don't really have any kind of way of imagining, like, living in Alaska, you know, for, for, for an oil boom. All I think of when I think about this is the is John Carpenter's The Thing. Yep. Where people were like, <laughs> going into helicopters, <laughs> like, dropping into the middle of nowhere, and that's their life. It's It's quite... Well, I saw a yeah. documentary at the Museum of Science in Boston, which has this thing called the Omni Theater, which is this massive kind of progenitor of what, you know, these IMAX theaters. But they showed nature documentaries, and they had this unbelievable documentary about Alaska that was all felt like filmed in, in planes. You really felt like you were flying through the sky watching it. I, I loved it. It's a beautiful, grand, incredible place. Everything seems small when you're in Alaska. I've never been, but I've seen it. I've seen this movie. I know people who were there. It's enormous mountains, enormous landscapes. It has a grandeur to it, and and uh, you know uh, that's partly why people like it. It is when you've been to Alaska, everything else seems small. It really is one of those places where the mountains are incredibly large, the bodies of water are are are, are you know the only th- landscape you kind of compare it to is like the fjords in, in in Scandinavia, but Alaska is bigger, I think, than Scan- than any of those areas. It, it certainly it's got. Um, like in Scandinavia, pretty much all the the people in Alaska are segmented in these little tiny areas towards the south of it, 
and uh, Kodiak Island and Anchorage. Um, and uh, so, it, it, you know, it is it is known as a place for it's not for the faint of heart. It is a very it is is the place that tends to draw people who are either going up there to make a quick buck in the oil industry or people who, you know, prostitutes follow uh, itinerant workers, you know, for that to get a part of that money. There's a lot of money in that uh, in the oil industry. But people who actually go up there to live there, they're always a bit cracked because there's, you know, it's not just yeah, that, yeah. It's almost like that, they're running uh, away cool. from something. It's I that, remember, like in Breaking uh, Bad, Jesse like, proposed to go to Alaska dark. with all the money, and you know, he was just really running yeah. away from his life. But um, Robert Robert Hansen uh, himself, yeah, in his childhood, developed this. I think that's exactly stutter. what it is, and I think that's it's actually what Robert, a trait Robert that his, his father had. But the speech impediment grew uh, worse by the constant scolding that he was given by his parents uh, also when he turned out to be uh left-handed he was forced to do things with his right hand this is an and he you know he felt intimidated think, by his father and, and felt shame and you would around feel un- him unbelievably helpless growing up like that being unable to control the stuttering being unable to control uh what how handed you are i mean this is something that was not unheard of you know, left-handedness, the word sinister co- connects to the word meaning for left-handed. It was believed that left-handedness was something that meant something bad about you. That there's one way to do it, it's to be right-handed. And um, that was believed for a long time, I think, in some European traditions. And uh, it, it, and the thing is, I think what comes out of this is this incredible um, helplessness and sense of emasculation that he grew up with. And I think that that is similar a little bit to I think to John Wayne Gacy. Who I think there are some commonalities here with with Gacy, and and I mean Gacy's father was worse than Robert Hansen's father. But this is a this is a really terrible way to affect your son. And then on top of this, Robert Hansen uh, develops very severe pockmarks, like a very, you know worse than acne, like the l- lifelong acne, um, and becomes uh, this is when he's still in Iowa, becomes the the relentless bullying target of everyone in his high school or seemingly everyone uh most noticeably the girls and um i think i think there's a number of ways in which when you look at robert hansen he does seem like one of these characters who in the serial killing in the golden age of serial murder as we call it in the late 60s to early 90s, that if he would have come along in today's world, in the world that kind of began with Columbine, um, and has just sort of accelerated since then, um, that he he might have become a mass shooter, either a school shooter or perhaps a mass shooter at a job or at any other place. And indeed, Robert Hansen would go on to uh, burn down the the building that had the school buses in it. Uh, and I think shortly after he graduated, uh, he he had a he had what was described by one psychiatrist as an infantile personality, and he had a, a lifelong grudge, burning a burning hatred of um, uh, and 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 uh, and desire for vengeance against everyone who made fun of him against and, and he associated it with the school. But I think what you see most of all. Is that becomes associated with this uh, linked desire for revenge, and conquest and domination of the girls, because he would fantasize even then he would fantasize about kidnapping and raping the girls at his high school, 
And this, I think, was primarily a desire for revenge, but it also links in, obviously, with his sexual impulse, his sexual desires, and with his desire for power and control, which is the motive of pretty much all serial killers. But the thing is, is that this this and his desire to get back at the school and his 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 terrible um, experience, antagonistic relationship with his father and with everyone in his town, it seems, or most people in his town, that 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 is something that predates any of even his his sexual violence. It, it, I think with Robert Hansen, you see, as I said, a guy who who you could think was a um, you know could have been a spree shooter uh, today, a mass shooter. But uh, but I think one of the but one of the reasons he's not also is that he 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 wanted he, he's such a clear illustration of the connection between the desire for power and control and how it connects to grievance. And the desire for revenge, because in general, serial killing is not really motivated by revenge. It's motivated by a desire for power and control that's kind of beyond that or bigger than that. But he does want revenge, and and um, but it is interesting that that his crimes are, you know, uh, luring and kidnapping uh, prostitutes, and and then eventually kill, um, hu- killing them, and eventually hunting them. Uh, as part of his uh, the fantasy, as part of the demonstration of, of of mastery and control, but the thing is, is that it, it is that um, he hates pretty much everyone in his school, and he, and he has this this terrible relationship with his father. He is someone who is that, and, he, and I think that you can understand how even a non pathological person would have a desperate desire for power. Uh, and, and he was also um, also isolated structurally. So. Um, so, like, he wouldn't go bowling and do the drive-in movie theaters or skating or, you know, rock and roll or rockabilly with any of the kids because he had to work at the bakery for $1. And he even even in his teenage years, um, and not only were his parents insistent that he worked, they were also devoutly religious. Um, they were an old-fashioned Lutheran cu- couple. Uh, the, the only you know, real opportunities he had for socializing was things like the chorus. Yeah, so 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 girls become not just an object of uh grievance and hurt, they also become this kind of forbidden thing. And in many ways you can see how actually even more likely for him to lead to prostitution because all activity with 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 women and girls, at least prior to marriage, uh, even dancing is is something that is that is has the tinge of the forbidden, the tinge of of the dirty and the shameful. So it's all kind of the same. And uh, it, also, this is another thing that makes you think of Dean Coral, we, who we covered in our fifth episode, had to spend so much of his childhood, um, you know, as a courier for his for his mom's candy company. And she and 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 Dean Coral's life is kind of emotionally dominated by his mother in much the same way as. And I think it, it was this loneliness that created an interest in more solitary activities, like as you, st- as you stated, like um, hunting, fishing, and archery. Um, yeah, he would practice his skills, and, and at the very least, it would allow him to have the, that recreation in, well into his adulthood.
this is, I think, maybe one, one of the biggest reasons he also goes to Alaska, because Alaska has such a culture built around hunting and fishing. And the landscape in Alaska, the, 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 the scope and grandeur of it is extraordinary. And and, and the opportunities for hunting, and, as it, and it is really built in the culture. There's hunting, obviously, in Iowa, but much more impressive hunting in, in Alaska. Part of it is also hunting allows for him to to learn to to do something that he can become very good at. He becomes a prize-winning hunter, so he's actually very skilled at that. Um, but unlike with baking, it's something that he does of his own volition, of his own desire and motivation. It's something that is out of the per, out of the sort of the the umbrella of his father out of his out, out of that whole world it is it, it is kind of in the natural world where the hunter is the the master of his domain the 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 gun is an extension of his uh, of his power and and hunting is something that he can um get good at uh find some level of achievement and um and and success and and uh, and 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 dominance of of a uh, you know uh, mastery of a craft um, and and something he can share with other people and something he can and and and, and something that, that the accomplishment is respected or at least it, it has the element um, now of course so does baking but baking is um, not if it's forced on him by his father not it, 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 there's no personal sense of power and achievement. And mastery and uh, personal choice in that—that's just something that's forced on him. But there's another side with Robert Hansen here. Two other sides here. One of which, of course, is that one of the things that's associated with hunting, and the, and writers have mentioned this. Writers have mentioned that lots of animals are hunters too, but humans are the only animal, as it were, that keeps trophies. We're the only one. Uh, other animals will bring their kill. Other animals will bring their kill back to their lair, but um, <clears throat> but you know they don't. You know, crocodiles may have a, a, a huge mound of bones in their lair, but they don't. They don't. They don't have a a, a uh, make monuments to their own glory. They don't. Um, humans are the only animal that doesn't just kill uh, their prey, but makes trophies uh, consciously. Of the the um, of 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 the vanquished uh, prey item, it's this is this is you know Robert Hansen. The room he holds some of the uh, girls he kidnaps is adorned with the heads of various kills, and I don't think that that, that that's a coincidence. And the fact that he can have these things, this is a way for him to have power and control these heads in a way that he doesn't through baking. Another side of it is. Robert Hansen would eventually get married a couple times. Um, the first one didn't work. Uh, and in both kind of times, it was kind of like the marriages we've seen in other characters. In, that it's, it's partly it's a cover, but partly it's also that there are just... That one woman marries him to fix, to fix him, you know, because he's, he's, he's someone who's he's pockmarked. He's kind of a reject. He has all these problems in his past. And she thinks she... And she has this kind of both... more Almost a more maternal aspect of it. The thing about it is... Is is that uh, his wives would would set Robert up on kind of uh, with other men to go out on hunting trips with him to make friends, and some of the other men who went on hunting trips with Robert Hansen were disturbed by his behavior. That they found him to be um, to to take to be a little bit get off a little bit too much on the killing of the animal, because it's obviously the killing of the animal is a necessary terminus to the hunt, and you get the 
you you get the meat, you get the uh, whatever you know the head, you get all these different things. You 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 get maybe uh, if you shoot a bear, as Robert Hansen became you know used to shoot shoot not just uh, not just deer but, but bear. So anyway, um, but they 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 felt he took too much of a delight in the kill, like like he like he likes shooting and killing living things too much. It's a necessary part of the hunt, but to most hunters, it's the trip, it's the it's the it's the stalking process, it's 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 the challenge, it's man versus nature. Maybe they like you know many hunters uh, like my uh, my uncle and grandfather like to. You know, you know they, they like to eat venison or whatever. Uh, the, one of my neighbors hunt, uh, has given us some deer meat and some bear meat, and um, and you can, of course, you can. People would he, would make clothing and blankets out of bear fur, uh, so that they they use the animal. They, many of them will follow the Indian traditions. You know, use the whole animal if you can. Um, the thing about it is, is that Robert Hansen, as some of the his people who he was on hunting with. He he took too much joy in the in the shooting and in the kill, and I think because it's power, it's 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 power, it's dominance, it's violence, it's you know you being the one who is the victimizer, not the victim, just like Gacy, and so he's no longer the victim of his father's domination, of the scorn and rejection of the girls, of the mockery of 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 the boys who don't have pockmarks and don't have a stutter and. You know, maybe are are good at sports. Robert Hansen was seen by a lot of people, including some of the prostitutes he picked up, as being nerdy, and he wasn't one of these nerds who was like a super smart nerd either. One of the many ways in w- in which he's like Gary Ridgway. We call we call those people dweebs. Yes, he is. He's a he's a dweeb, except yeah, the, that the, the, the etymology of uh, <laughs> actually the, yes the, the bestiary of uh, the high school, types. Uh, high school types. And this is also this is the. He, he, you know, he was born in I think 1939. I think it was, and he, he, so he, 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 um, he would have been in high school in the 50s. Uh, so it's not quite the worst time as in like the 1980s, but still not great to be a to be a nerd, um, unless you're really good at science and you know, maybe the U.S. government. But Robert <laughs> Hansen, Robert Hansen was not. He was a dweeb. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in the greatest time to be a nerd. <laughs> nerd, uh, nerd television now. Nerd movies. <laughs> Well, except that a lot of the nerd <laughs> movies and television are explaining nerd culture to non-nerds. Like you, you find very few nerds who actually like. The only I think exception would be something like Star Trek. But uh, I know it wasn't that uh, that 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 Nick Mullen gag about how Star Trek is exp- is about explaining human relationships to autistic people. <laughs> and to some degree, it's like where Data is the stand-in. I mean, not entirely true, but it, it's there is a little bit of truth to it. The thing about it is. One of the you know there's similarities to Gacy. But one of the other characters I think in this period that Hanson has a lot of obvious similarities to is Gary Ridgway, who we'll get to the Green River Killer. We'll get to a, a few episodes down the line, who until recently was the most prolific killer and serial killer in American history, according to the records. And uh, Gary Ridgway, though, as people uh, who know the case know, had an IQ of about eighty. He, he he struggled to complete a coherent sentence half the time. But he was very like Robert Hansen, very competent in his job. Uh, had a pla- you know, had a a surface, you know, that 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 was acceptable. To, you know, Gary Ridgway um, met his wife at a sort of a country dancing uh, sort of a, a night. Uh, Robert Hansen did not have those sort of social skills. He kind of he was the kind of guy he get set up with a girl on a, by the church. Um, he's so um, Hansen, obviously. 
in his adolescence, obviously, he develops certain levels of, of resentment. And uh, even before, you know, the, the, the more grievous crimes that we're obviously going to touch on, he did commit um, other crimes. So uh, he, Hansen and, and a gang that he had developed traveled to the north, uh, to the town of Rolf and blew up a tractor. Uh, it was a practice run for their target, the Pocahontas Water Tower. And then also he committed um, some arson as well. Yeah, he 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 burns down the uh, the the building that held the the school buses, right? Or is that before that? Uh, so he burned down a barn. Uh, apparently, the barn. I think the barn had the school buses in it. This is maybe another. Uh, okay, I, yeah. I think this is maybe another Iowa thing. That's very Iowa that he would have yeah, a barn with school buses. Um, and um, and I think it was one of actually one of his accomplices that exposed him because it was. He was talking to some people at a party, and one of the people that he was talking to attended Hanson's school, and uh, and then he went back and then told the authorities about it. Yeah, he he brought in some other people as kind of accomplices that he that then they, that they flipped on him, and uh, yeah, he 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 that 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 that's sort of what happened. I mean, maybe they had a similar grievances to him, but I think that he was just sort of he was putting together a little bit of a posse, and then they 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 flipped. I think he was he was the one who was most invested in getting revenge. Maybe they were just interested in burning something down. But yeah, he 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 was very open with uh, investigators and and uh, psychiatrists who talked to him later about his continued burning hatred of um of the school. And the monolithic um, massive significance that it had taken, and I, I've seen in my own life that you know that issues with you know uh, grudges over things that happened when you were a kid or whatever, it tends to calcify and take on greater significance when you cannot move find some way to move beyond it. And but Robert Hansen, I don't think it was just it was his lack of success in life that it didn't enable him to move beyond it. It, it wasn't that as really as much as as the psychiatrist said, his infantile personality. His, you know, it was just he was psychologically or mentally incapable of moving beyond that. And yeah, so he was sentenced to three years in the state reformatory at Anno Mosa on October 9th, 1961. And he met with the psychiatrist, as, as, you, as you say, and you know, as you say, they talked about his obsession with the tormenting in his school years and, uh, you know, his pain, but also his, the psychiatrist said, you know, he had a kind of an infantile personality. But, yeah, he was super open with the, with the authorities about it. And, and his, his parents were very supportive, at least, you know, in the, in the, in the maximal sense. Uh, they were, you know, supportive of their son. I think what it was is that uh, initially also his father was very strongly in in the corner defending him against charges that he had done this or that he had he had you know, like he was saying that he was innocent and very and people were just after him and then when he was convicted i think that his father was very disappointed and upset and that just compounded the disappointment kind of like when gacy ends up being sentenced to um you know to to jail for for sodomy and and so the thing about it is you know um 
you know, after his father had said he was going to grow up to be a fruit picker. So the thing about it is, is I think this, this, his father was supportive, but it, it just makes it worse because then he's disappointed and he's, and, and, and when he goes to jail, the, his father, I think, and his mother and the whole family moved, I think, to Minnesota. Yeah. So when he comes out of prison, he, he joins them in Minnesota. Minnesota is, uh, for those who know, it, a lot of uh, Scandinavian people, uh, uh, Scandinavian uh, immigrants went to Minnesota, and there's, it's still a lot of uh, lingering Scandinavian culture there, um, but particularly uh, Swedish and Norwegian. But the thing about it is, is that, um, yeah, I mean, I think at that point, he, you probably start to see the seeds of the desire to strike off on his own and find a a new frontier, and I think in many ways the frontier in American hist- in American history and 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 folklore is the idea of new beginnings, of a in so, you know in some religious traditions like the Mormonism comes out of the idea of a new gospel, the gospel over the horizon that you know the prom the new promised land, all this whole thing where it represents a you know can represent the resurrection of someone who has whose downfall in life has come. And and they want to be re- resurrected and remake themselves or be remade in this new, you know, the crucible, this new landscape. And Alaska is a real challenge to people. It's a, it, it, you know you 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 can't just go up to Alaska like you would go to California. It's it's very cold. It's very dark part of the year, and it's it's very formidable. So I think that's probably you wonder when that the seeds of that were laid. But you imagine it happened when the whole thing went down when he went to jail. And then his family moved into Minnesota. That. Or that you know, at that point, you just he's got he gets into hunting and he wants to he wants to find some level of self respect and mastery of and in his own life, and that can happen in Alaska as a hunter, and then eventually as a hunter of uh, prostitutes who are sort of stand-ins uh, for the the hatred and grievance he has towards the girls who mocked him and rejected him in high school. Yeah, so he comes up. He obviously, he has that relationship with, I think, Phoebe Paget. Um, uh, and actually, they they get engaged during the the time where he's, uh, you know, going to prison. But that relationship dissolves. And um, he starts dating a, a girl called Darla, who is... Nearly six feet tall. Actually, like Phoebe, she was a little bit awkward. She always stood, stood out because she was she was tall. She wasn't super popular with the boys. Darla's family did disapprove of the, the the engagement, but that wasn't a big deal for her. Uh, they decided to wait until Darla graduated from the University of Iowa. After Hanson returned uh, from the Windy City, yeah, they they two the two wrote long letters to each other. Darla seemed to like Hanson because, actually, kind of because he was sort of quiet and he had a kind of like a, a sympathetic past. They you know so they they got on. It wasn't until he the you know the, they were married for a few years that. She started to detect that you know he was short tempered and a little bit distant, but at this time he was, you know, this there, there was a, you know, it was a genuine romantic relationship 
built on mutual sympathy, I think. Yeah, it often happens. You can have people who have this. They, they, there's something that they feel for each other they have, and uh, and a mutual sympathy, as you say. It's not necessarily, you know, people who meet, not necessarily the, obviously, the star quarterback and the, the head cheerleader or the whatever version of that you could have in um, in various milieus. It, it, sometimes it is just a mutual sympathy. And, and, uh, and you wonder if also we talk about the Madonna horror parallel, if also this is a way Robert Hansen compartmentalizes, you know, the women who he marries, it's his job to take care of them, to, prov- to provide the sta- stability for them in the proper face of a successful uh, man and her husband in society, in you know, whatever society is. Um, but but he still has this desire for the um, for things that can only be brought about through uh, these pro- for, through, through his pr- pattern of, of prostitutes. So he has the Madonna figure, which is you know the the the, the good woman, uh, and then he has the you know the the whores who are the the objects of his desire, but also the objects of his scorn and derision and the stand-ins for the girls that he wants to to um, make into abject, into, into, into objects of abjection, into victims, into, uh, you know, to get revenge, a displaced revenge against the girls in his high school in the form of the, of, of the, of the, um, the prostitutes. But in some ways, for there to be a whore, there has to be a Madonna figure as a counterpart. So he has the, 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 uh, the good woman at home, and one of the reasons he also hired prostitutes is is that he had said he wanted them to do things uh, that you know were beneath a good woman, uh, like oral sex. And now you know that's become more normalized. But at then that was something you paid a prostitute for because you're not gonna uh, you know have your wife object herself in that way. You're, you know, no, it's not, you know not, not not every woman wants to be a whore, as you know we, we've we've. Uh figured out from the Russell Brand um, <laughs> revelations, you know, where um, women, in, in, you know, in, in these structurally consensual interactions are, are complaining about things like having having to choke him or, or him choking them or needing or him wanting to, to be punched in the face in order to get him off, off her or something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's it's a constant push and pull um, between men and women, and women, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and I think part of it is that some of these sorts of guys, a handsome example is, is that is that he he sort of separates all these these more uh, atavistic or bestial elements to to his sexual desires, and they're put all way off into this little pocket, you know, um, a, li- a little, a, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a lockbox where all bad thoughts go. To quote an old Saturday Live sketch, um, and that um, was making fun of the Al Gore lockbox thing. And uh, and the thing is, is that uh, I wonder how much we all compartmentalize that though, as well. You know, because I know Scorsese is famous for having these kind of Madonna whore dynamics in a lot of his characters, right? Like Jake LaMotta with his his wife, who. He can't have sex with, but but he's scared that other men are having sex with her, and he's playing that all out in his fights. Or Travis Bickle, and you know the, the 
whores, the prostitutes versus uh, Sybil Shepherd, or even like in the Age of Innocence, right? Where yeah. You can't. Where it's the it's the, the thought of the woman, the 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 the, the impression over the physical engagement with, with her. I suppose like like if, I was even having a conversation with the guy who's like, you know, like, there's some women who are beautiful, and some women who are hot. And they, they, <laughs> yeah. they don't come together, you know, or, or sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, like, you know, sometimes they show different sides. There, there's a, um, there, there, I remember seeing this documentary about Joni Mitchell and, and it was about, and, and Joni Mitchell had this kind of image as, as much more kind of like the elevated eth- ethereal songstress with that voice and with her, her presence. And then she did a record that uh, she appealed to a certain type of a man. And then she did a record um, where she was much more sensual. And I remember one, one like, one sort of Southern guy who was more like, you know, it's like, oh, this one, she was a red hot mama, flesh and blood. Before she's just ethereal princess. You know, it, it, there is a difference. They, different things appeal to different people. And sometimes things is different versions of you, different ego states of your personality that are, mm-hmm. that are prominent in different times. And, uh, and then sometimes people do put that into particular uh, segments of their life. Because actually, I, I once met a girl who uh, who liked Joni Mitchell, and um, in, and she was she she played guitar, and you know when she she walked, you know what she was she was um, she worked at a cafe, but she, the way she walked and the way she talked, she was completely like. Like there was there was nothing sexual about her rule. It was just like she was like kind of a vulnerable figure, you know. Yeah. And if you if and and you compartmentalize that, but if you add the other thing, it I don't know, it becomes confusing, I think. And I think probably men a lot of men have always struggled with that. Yeah, and sometimes men have these different associations. They don't want it, you know, to be associated possibly with anyone in their family, or you know, it's like it's like they have these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about my daughter. Um, Yeah, no, I think I think that is true, and a lot of people do feel like they have this shame about some of their sort of uh, unvarnished carnal desires, that and they they want to keep that away from. From their um, the the purity of of, of the of the of the image they have of their beloved, but the thing about it is with Robert Hansen is it's much more extreme. It's much more like you know a figure of reverence, but then a figure of just unalloyed contempt and hatred. And and uh, and in some ways, some of these guys, as you'll you see, I think with particularly with the sexual sadists, and there's elements of that with Hansen that um, that. The ideal uh, receptacle for this sexual desire they have is to put it into this garbage can where they've thrown, you know, this this filthy victim, and 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 the victim is is you know uh, abjected, but and also made you know powerless, and so that it affirms their power, but also the. Um, the, it kind of defiles the the, the victim, or, or shows them, you know, it treats them as they should be treated because they're dirty, they're they're bad, and that's the way Hanson and 
Ridgeway and Kent Bianchi look at whores is that they're 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 the sort of the waste product of society and they're to be flushed down the toilet and 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 partly i you know i don't know what hansen psychology is exactly most of these guys are psychopaths but the thing about it is is that you figure with hansen that um it's that it's not just a matter of you know assuaging guilt we don't know if he had guilt it's it's a matter of um of justifying the action because they actually just like Hansen, I think sees integrates this into his hunting. So he has a sense of mastery and achievement around this. The other side of it is, is, is that he, he, he may think he's doing something good for society like Ridgeway did. Like he's, he's, um, he's, he's flushing the toilet. He's expelling the bad smell. He's, He's getting rid of the waste product of society. There's an element where some of the waste society, the implicit or, um, you know, the 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 the, the kind of the, the the quiet part said loud by these serial killers is that to some degree that's how society views that. Society views the patronage of prostitutes as being shameful, as being you know, so they, they, you you hide the shame as much as possible, like keeping them out of public view, and that's partly why. Uh, there has been this this movement to 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 I guess normalize sex work or whatever. But the truth of the matter is 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 that this happens. This stuff happens because there is a demand, and and uh, and in much the same way as there being a, a a demand in the labor market, it's not necessarily something to be celebrated. It's just or or condemned. It's just something that is. But uh-huh. but it's it's um. It's it, it it but it is it obviously there's op, there's opportunities for exploitation there's opportunities for um for for taking some small advantage of it by either the 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 employer or the worker depending on on their situation and um I think um that you 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 could compare him to Kemper Kemper actually Kemper's victims are coeds right the more bourgeois women so he's like um he's he's punching upwards you know as a, as a, maybe a co- comedian would say while hansen's punching down so like in you know like at the the genesis of this podcast we think a lot about um these kinds of less than dead figures right uh you know, mid twentieth century agriculture um, is created long lives for at all anyone in in all classes, right? But there, but then there's this kind of um, sense of alienation, bowling alone, and atomization that that happens. You know, in America, as we talked about in in cities like. Um, Pocahontas, or in places like Anchorage, Alaska, where where the you know the the roots aren't that deep, and then there's this like growth of these like less than dead figures, and as as you've been touching on, prostitutes are perceived as less than dead, but you know people like Kemper and Ted Bundy didn't really look to or didn't really have resentment towards people that could be perceived as lower than them, you know, in, in, 
in any dimension. It was always sort of more upper class or people that their their resentment was was channeled towards. Yeah, I mean, Kemper's resentment was uh, as a way to get back at his mother, and but both Bundy and Kemper, you could say, in some way, it's it's a little bit like people who collect, you know, antiques or cars. It's it's they, they want they want a particular model of that, whereas. I think with, with the less dead aspect of it is part. I mean, we've covered a, we've we've covered the less dead, um, we've covered the less dead uh, before, but largely in the context of the the lack of concern initially about teenage boys going missing, and you know, um, you know, but obviously the other side side of that is. Um, and maybe the more even more prominent one when you take a look at this whole that this whole period and still to this day is is prostitutes and it's a little bit i think this is a little bit different actually than a, than a, these sort of towns in the midwest which are very these kind of insular bubbles and they and maybe and maybe they spring up but i think that this this sort of diffusion that happens in in the post-war period in particular, has two facets. It has the development of these kind of exploding areas and, you know, and the, the kind of the people moving out to places like California and, and all this mythology is built up around that. But it also has is these, you know, these boom towns. And we still have this today. And, and Anchorage is a boom town at the time with the oil industry in the 19... And, and once again, the really loud noises again. It sounds like you're putting away trash. But uh, anyway, um, so uh, but the, but the diffusion is to some degree it's it's siphoning people off into these little garbage bins where they can be disp- disp- dispensed with, and in some and so it's actually the prostitutes are kind of like uh, society's detritus who gets put into these compartments and then eventually carried off by the trash, you know. Or put, or you know, or, or compacted and, and and taken out to the dump, you know. The, the, so the, the <sighs> once again, really loud noises. Is, is there anything we can do about this? Okay, all right. Okay, okay. Well, that's fine then. If it's just, I mean, if it's just a constant thing. But um, so yeah, I mean, so I, so I, I so I think that in some ways it's something that that is just kind of implicit and taken for granted, but it's not worthy of attention that's the idea whereas with the the boys it was more just like you know ah they 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 ran away or they went away for a while it's like more just like boys will be boys but that that you know but in both cases there wasn't any investigation and to some degree with the boys it was also in Gacy and Coral it was also that they were lower class so the thing about it is is that by definition at least at this point and to some degree still I mean this is still the case true too prostitution a, a, a girl who becomes a prostitute is already a social reprobate, already a social loser because, you know, she isn't a, she isn't a proper girl. She isn't, she's all, you know, by being the whore, she is essentially kind of like, you know, if I can borrow a little bit Norman Mailer's term, the white Negro, the idea of the, 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 the person who chooses to be the, this a social reject, but that's of course, it's not a, a political statement. It's, it's a statement usually of desperation but the thing is, a person who is making a decision and trying to make money out of desperation rather than out of a desire to contribute to the American mythos of the self-made person, uh, a person who ends up in a place like Anchorage rather than in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, 
that's that's already a story that people don't want. I mean, there, there's an aspect where you know at this point the idea of Alaska isn't even a place at this point as an idea for adventure. It's a place that you know get yeah, people go up to make a quick buck uh, work, uh, working for the oil companies. You have bars that 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 you know where people hang out, and you have uh, pro, uh, sex workers who go up there to uh to, to take some of that money too it becomes a little bit like a frontier town and if you've seen a western you, you have a saloon you have well you know often the saloon will will have an adjunctive whorehouse or whorehouse in the saloon you have guys shooting each other there, there was an expectation in these sort of situations of violence and if there was going to be violence against prostitutes well that, that that's what happens if you take that kind of job was the idea but in this case it eventually ends up being investigated because there's there's different um uh, there, there's obvious patterns uh, being built because of the use of, of of the gun that was used, but at this point, this, okay, so, at this point in the story, Robert Hansen, we're we're not there yet. So where we are in the story, um, so he's he's come out of prison. He's married to Dara, and uh, he's working in the bake sh- in a bake shop, um, and managed to stay for some time in uptown Minneapolis. Although at this time, you know, he isn't committing any overt crimes, but the darker parts of his personality are still like popping up now and then. So he's losing his temper at work and he starts to steal things as well. Yeah, like like a lot of these guys, there's some other element of small time time crime that's part of their control mechanism. And to some degree, I think stealing for a lot for a lot of people who do steal, you see this sometimes with people who are you know who 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 are who who kind of have a particular mo with shoplifting that they are doing it to see if they can get away with it and to see if they you know and and in so doing exerting a little bit of control. Um, his stealing, how does that work? You know, this is for me like I'm I don't know I think maybe it's this podcast or other things because. You know, instinctually, I I buy that. I mean, and it's a fact that you know, in when times are hard, whether it's like a, a recession or you have a cost of living issue, uh, stealing in shops, you know, will increase. But it doesn't tend to be, say, mothers who need groceries or like super poor people who like trading off um you know their own personal safety for committing the crime it does tend to be people who just want to see if they can get away with and who can sell to maybe sell those goods to people who need who need them and also people who have like darker personality traits people who are like a little bit sociopathic and I and that's that aspect of crime all kinds of crime that that I'm I don't know I, I, I feel like is kind of virgin territory for me because well, you have you have a you have a, a, a more leftist understanding of crime and I think yeah and I, and, no, yeah and, and I, I think the way to look at it is is that to have a reflexively sort of self-reinforcing view of crime, either from a right or left perspective, you can miss the full picture, which is usually there's a bit of both because there is an aspect of opportunism, an aspect of sociopathic crime, an aspect of 
careless exploitation of your community. But there is also an aspect of powerlessness and frustration and pent-up rage and desperation that comes out, even in the sorts of actions that you describe, where people are looting because of some crazy shit that's happened. I think also one of the things that happened is, you know, there was a, a you know, in the pandemic, there was a lot of of uh, rioting that was painted as some, uh, you know, by some as sort of uh, righteous and painted by some as as the the epitome of the social breakdown. And what I and I remember thinking is, well, actually, I think a lot of it is because of lockdowns and the pandemic that that fear is a huge part of this. But that's not really what you see in this podcast series, because part of what happens with serial killing is that because it's a serial thing, it's not sprees, it, it tends to not have the associated element of terrorism with it. The exception, of course, being something like the Night Stalker. It tends to, but it tends to have to be something that blends into what's happening and escapes notice until it can no longer escape notice. Whereas when you see these things happening, you know, like we, as you describe, it's more like this is evidence of some social rot or social breakdown. And some, and, and from some, you can look at it as exploitation and equality and, and uh, the underclass rising up, or you can look at it as lawlessness and barbarism and, uh, and, 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 and selfishness and lack of, of communitarian values. And I think there's truth to, to some degree to both, even though I, I tend to come down on more, more on, on your side, generally speaking. Um, but what I was referring to is people who like, like people who go into stores and shoplift in order to just like, what can they get away with without being noticed? And in some ways, serial killers do that a little bit because by targeting the less dead, they're not going to be noticed as much by targeting people or dumping their bodies in out of the way places. They, um, you know, or, or underneath their house in the case of Gacy or uh, in their garden, in the case of Bruce MacArthur in Canada recently, you know, that's sort of how, how that's a, and that's another way also in which you play a game and pull the wool over people's eyes. I don't know to what degree this is a function with Hanson, but I think Hanson he has this like Ridgeway he has and Gacy and other figures like that he has this social face that is acceptable and and I don't know if that's as much part of his ego game or just it's that he has this is the one compartment in his life over here and one over here and um and that's how he wants it, it to be and that's how it works. I think that primarily with Hanson, the, 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 the psychological, the psychodrama here is in each element of the crime because everything that's happening is he wants this power and control in his own life and then to extend that to this environment. And I think one of the reasons why hunting ends up becoming uh, a part of his, because it's not initially a part of it. Initially, it's the luring and kidnapping and rape and... Uh, and then d- dumping some of his victims just in out-of-the-way places. A few of them, I think, died in ravines or just from the elements after being stabbed or whatever. It's horrible. But the thing about it is is the hunt, adding the hunting, he, you united the conquest and the vengeance against uh, women and the, the um, socially responsible thing of getting rid of society's detritus in his mind. You've, uh, you, you've united that with the mastery of the craft of hunting with the... the, uh, the, 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 the um, protagonist role in that and the victor role in that of uh, of the hunter and and so the hunter therefore is is the master of his domain not just of his internal life but he 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 makes the external world a part of his internal life he makes 
the natural world. His, and he makes the place he hunts uh, a part of his internal victory where he is now the victimizer, not the victim, where he is now the victor, not the vanquished, where he has made these stand-ins for the girls who mocked and rejected him, where, where he becomes, rather than his father, the figure of masculine power and, and um, mastery of, uh, of his domain through, through the volitional mastery of the craft of hunting and the uh, abduction um, of, uh, and uh, rape and, and eventually uh, hunting of these girls. And I think another aspect where, with hunting is in the case of Hansen. It, you know, and we're, we're focusing a great deal on hunting, but I think that's one of the things that makes this case fairly unique. Because normally, as I said, serial killing, you see serial killers strangle because that's such an intimate and controlled thing. Um, some stab, but usually the ones who are more out of control stab. The controlling serial killers, and Hansen is a controlling, is, a, is, is, a, is an organized killer, they tend to, to use strangulation. But part of this is that, and you'll see this in another version with uh, the killers in our next case, um, at Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, as well as with David Parker Ray and, and some of the sadists we covered, like BTK, this sort of scripted um, uh, role of their crime, that they they put the the victims in this position where they where they dictate their action uh, by causing a reaction or by giving them commands, but they can never fully they, they they're doomed to fail in 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 whatever action they take. Either way, the, the end point is determined. But by causing them to act in a certain way, they control and dictate their action, and, and they make that the, the victim it partially responsible for their failure, which increases the ego of the victor, but also makes them, you know, they, they had it coming. At one point, Hansen says about, about one, uh, one or I think multiple of his victims, who uh, after he flies her out to where he was going to fly her out to, that, that you know, she ran and, and so she brought it on herself, you know, she was a coward or whatever. And when they when they run, that signals the hunt, I think, in the instinct of the hunter. But also they're bringing it on themselves. But of course, if you fly someone out who you've abused to a place and, and, and you untie them or you at least give them the op- enough to run, you take let them out of the plane they've been flown in. Of course, they're going to run. What else are they going to do? And. And unlike you will see with the rules um, on a piece of paper in our next episode, that it's impossible for the victim to win. So, because if it was possible, they wouldn't set up the game this way. Robert Hansen is setting it up so that he is impossible for that person to to win because once he's flown them out there, um, they're in this remote location. They have nowhere to go. They can just run in sort of uh, blind panic away from the guy with a gun, but they have no way to get away. And um, the exception to this is one of his victims, um, who if you've seen the movie The Frozen Ground, which is an okay movie, but uh, the, the, the one victim who survives Robert Hansen, this is something you see in some of these uh, stories, is that you have an enterprising or um, courageous woman or whatever, uh, uh, or lucky, depending how you, you see it, um, who gets away and alerts the authorities. Uh, the woman in this case is Cindy Paulson, who, is, who was abducted by Hanson, or really she was alert. She, he, he would bring some of these girls and um, go up to them at a strip club and tell them, you know, give them money to meet them for a date somewhere. 
so um, on February the 22nd, 1965, Hansen was arrested for stealing about $11 worth of fishing lures from a sporting goods store. At this time, he asked his boss to bail him out so that Darla wouldn't find out, but she eventually found out. After she graduated from college in spring of 1967, she and Hansen decided to move somewhere else. They chose Alaska and took a road trip along the way to Pacific Northwest. They camped and took climbing clothes to the great Tenton National Park, enjoying their time together before making a big move. So they moved to to Alaska at this point. So this is in 1965? So, uh, 1967. 67, yeah. Um, most of the action in this case takes place in the 70s and in the early 80s. But, uh, yeah, that's, um, as I said, it's around this time where you start to see Anchorage, Alaska, the capital, uh, becoming an oil boom town. And, um, and it would have been a, definitely a, a major change in lifestyle, even if you grew up in rural Iowa, because, as I said, Alaska has its own, is its own – it's not really a part of the United States in any uh, experiential sense. It's its own little place. It's only a part of the United States and te- that technically it's a state. But it's, it is kind of a – a, a a real part of the Wild West and almost an alien land. And, and part of the appeal, apparently, to some, when Sarah Palin was the vice president of was that she was this, you know, this this strange, almost uh, Ringling Brothers circus character, uh, that she was almost like someone from the, the Wild West show. Uh, she that, that that she was just, but I mean, there, it is a different place. You could really have a real sense of adventure moving out there Having been in this in this big, grand, bold place, but it's also it's not it's you know civilization is in its embryonic stages than in Alaska, and in some ways still is. The Hepard uh, was his first kidnapping uh, in Alaska, so she had been working as a real estate receptionist, uh, just enjoying her her free free time. Um, so she opened the door. She found herself face to face with a man who was smiling at her. She didn't know what the man was doing. She was trying to be polite, but she noticed that the man had a stutter. Uh, he seemed like he had troubles with his words. So the the man uh, looked back at her. His eyes were cold and blue. His face was covered in small, deep scars. He was. He told her he was looking for something. So a few days had gone by, and, and um, Susie had forgotten about the man. You know, she was hanging around with her her roommates. But then the man comes back, and an interesting thing is that he actually ox oxes her out. Well, yeah. Well, one thing is, is that a number of um, of Hanson's victims were not like just he didn't just grab them and throw them in a van like you see with some other killers, or or um, or even just lure them in a false pretense. He he did um, ask some of them out. Hanson made a fair amount of money as a as owning a bakery, and uh, he was able to sometimes say, "Will you have?" lunch with me for this amount of money 
or will you perform this act for this amount of money? And he would, and he would offer more than was standard. And 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 a number of 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 people that he uh, girls he approached at these these places, they saw him as maybe a bit nerdy, but they 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 didn't see him initially as threatening. And it's probably not uncommon to have uh, when you're encountering patrons of sex work or of strip clubs to have guys who might have some sort of facial you know, um, you know, deformity or some side, some some obvious marker of them as being, you know, socially awkward in a way that would be visible rather than just their manner. So it, it's it would not be too surprising. Uh, and um, but he didn't. He wasn't the kind of guy who immediately gave off these vibes in the way that say Mike DeBartolabin did with that real estate agent. You know. Um, and, and and it wasn't uncommon for people, and especially in Anchorage, to you know, for men to be patronizing prostitutes or, or uh, sex clubs or, or, or strip clubs because that was a huge part of the connected to the oil industry. It's it's a it's essentially a wild west town. So a few days went by, and Susie forgotten about the man. As she pulled into her parking space, the headlights of her car revealed the figure of a person who then stood off somewhere behind a neighboring building. There was the sinking feeling. She cautiously stepped out of her car. Her feet had barely touched the ground when the figure jumped back out. It was the same man, and he was pointing a gun. Panicked, Susie let out a scream. Shut up, sweetheart, the man warned, or I'll blow your brains out. But Susie couldn't stay quiet. She shrieked again, hoping this time someone would hear inside the apartment. Susie's roommates were jolted by the cries. Then the sudden wailing of the police silence sirens made him scream. He turned and ran off into the darkness, leaving a trembling Susie alone in, in his vehicle. Susie wanted to run away herself. She wanted to hide, but she got out of the car. All she saw were guns drawn at her face. The sight knocked the air out of her and she fell to the ground with her face hidden in the snow and her hands over her head. She begged in between sobs for them not to shoot her, but the guns that were pointing at her were, were the guns of police officers. Yeah, this is... So this is... Um, but she wasn't a prostitute, was she? Or she no, she, she was a real estate secretary, right? Yeah, so this is before he targets prostitutes. I think part of the reason he targets prostitutes is to more justify as a kind of a social good whatever ends up happening. Um, but this is this is but but this but he also really would he his he really wants revenge against women for for his you know indignities in high school and 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 I think that. Partly is that the same instinct that leads him to become a hunter is also leading him to try to, to, uh, to uh, att- uh, lure these or these women. Is it, it, it? Is there is there a next one or is it more just a series of next ones? There's a series of next ones, so we probably should t- touch on. Uh, Barbara Field, as well, just briefly. Um, but first, actually, but act first, actually, Susie um, 
is able to spot him and uh and then like he goes to trial for the crime against Susie Hepper and the jury tried him for assault with a deadly weapon but I think in the end he was just not allowed to go within a certain feet of Susie Hepper. So before he started murdering, he he sort of graduated to um, stalking and attempted kidnapping of, of, of women. Yeah, um, it's it's an escalation process, and 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 I think that in his case, the murder is not really, at least certainly initially. But I don't even think, in essence, is it, it's really the primary uh, thing. I think it's a it, it is something that becomes a part of things, but it is the primary thing. I think is expressed in the luring and the 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 holding and the rape. And you know, if you look back to his fantasies as a teenager of, of rape of of, of uh, you know apprehending and and uh, raping the teenage girls in his um in his high school as a form of revenge that this is clearly very much an expression of that and eventually when it becomes fused with this hunting you have another element and you have as i said other people went hunting with him did did think that he he took too much uh you know enjoyment in 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 the kill but i that's not what this is about i th- i think it primarily is about the rape and uh and and the significance that the rape has of revenge because so it's not just about proving that he is the um the victimizer not the victim it's the objection the degradation the vengeance against women that it represents yeah so barbara field uh, she was coming home she's driving home and uh, the through fog she wiped the glass uh, she knew that the drive home was going to be quite difficult. A silver Pontiac pulled up in the space beside her. She she hardly took notice, but the driver su- somehow beat her to, uh, to the stop. Barbara looked at Hanson with confusion as he blocked her way into the cafe. Hanson attempted to speak, but whatever he said was nearly incomprehensible. There's a stutter again. Barbara noticed that he seemed nervous and uh, because it was speech impediment, that's when he pulled out the gun. He said, "Now listen, and do what I said, and don't scream." So he put her in his car. They headed south on the Arctic Boulevard. Um, and he said, "You know, that no one's going to be here to help you." So they drove off in silence. He ordered her to get down to her knees in front of the dashboard and grabbed her arms. He drove to Kine Peninsula, the strains on her wrists. So he he stopped the car somewhere along the Indian Road and turned around to look at her, crawling out of the driver's seat. He got closer. She she expected the worst. So desperate to put off what she was coming, she obviously she protested. Hanson, who seemed to swing, uh, she protested, but then telling him she did not want to, to do it in the car. Could he wait until he they got somewhere private? 
and Hansen actually he swung from being super violent to kind of being meek and they they traveled together um so they they actually went to a cafe but he grabbed the a knife from under the seat in order to kind of impose himself on her one of the other things i think that you see with these as we're going to say with 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 i think with the clear um very clear structural build up in these crimes is that there's these different parts of it which is you know the luring or you know the the, the he'll he'll go pick up supplies she'll have maybe an opportunity to move in some way there's there's um there's you know eventually one of them gets away there, there, there there's there's this this kind of it's like you're taking it's like the different it's a strange way of putting it but it's like the different stations you know and and uh it you know i don't know if this is a conscious thing or not but it's like there's the there's i'm not going to compare it to stations of the cross but there's like these different stations where the the each 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 part of this is hansen uh you know gearing up for the next part of the uh, of the process and sometimes a hunter will take their their prey from one location to another and then to then another location from there so um he is very methodical and you wonder if if each parts of this each components of this process is is kind of part of the ritual but i don't know do you know what's funny? When he stripped off his clothes, he noticed that there was something strange about his penis. <laughs> he was erect, but his member was short and thick, and the tip, tips appeared to be. Well, how thick. strange is that? I mean, that's just that might be just a type of penis, but <laughs> that might be just you know the, the 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 you know that might be just a type of penis. Although you'd think if this was someone who was used to you know the company of men, it might be. They might they might have a comparative thing, but um, it I don't know if there's any real information. Hansen is one of these guys that has issues with erectile dysfunction or any particular needs like Peter Curtin, you know, with blood or whatever, uh, or, or uh, Mike Departelaben with the, the the victim's response to to get an erection. I I don't know, um, and that's the case with Hansen. Maybe it just. But he does have this very strong sense of himself as being deformed, as being, or or at least as being pockmarked and you know disfigured in some way. Um, I don't know if his if his penis had anything to do with it. I think it's fairly recently that men had any particular sense for the um, aesthetics of their penis. <laughs> I mean, maybe you could you could say that that. That the uh, that Michelangelo did, but in the opposite way that you might find in in today's uh, pornography. The uh, the Michelangelo's idea of of, of David's penis was, uh, I suppose, what many people might make jokes about the uh, <laughs> about uh, the Jewish penis. I have no idea if that's true or not, but um, but it's it's uh, you know it, there, there's a, there's an aspect of of it where people make jokes about Michelangelo's David's uh, diminutive penis. But the idea of it being, you know, it's not something you see in either direction, really, in art, you know, until recently, you know, you, you, you know, but I don't know, maybe he did have some mild deformation or some, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So like he, he has sex with her. He's on, he's upset that she's not fighting back 
he seemed to enjoy the back and forth of that. And then a terrified thought, you know, dawned on her she was trapped. And then he lets her out of the cart and tells her to start running. Yeah, so this is obviously going to be, um, the, you know, the, the you know prefiguring or, or modeling at least the uh, the function of the hunting in that, which is that when the victim runs, uh, that's that's that stimulates in his um, the atavistic parts of his uh, of his instincts. That's that that his his um, his desire to hunt, and I think that one of the reasons that that is is because he's he has some level of confidence in his ability to do it and it's it's a power trip and it is going to eventually be something where he can show his his mastery uh in life and control of the situation and and her running you know you know obviously one of his victims get, gets away but you know the running obviously that's just what you you know you do you're just trying to get away that's you know just like any 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 prey is trying to get away. So she drops to her knees in front of them. Through her tears, she told him she would not run. She pretended to have enjoyed their time together, and maybe she would take up a, on him on a date. She told him about her baby boy at home and how he needed her. And he and then he started getting a, a little nervous, and you know, and then she started begging, saying that. She wouldn't tell the cops that she hated the cops. Um, you know, she told she she wanted to give him her license so that she would know where where she lived and and she could make sure. And last, he t- untied her and said that he was taking her back. Uh, he, they drove to Anchorage, and and he let her, he actually let her out of the car. Oh, so he 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 actually he lets her go. I let her oh, go. Yeah. Well, this is something you see with uh, sometimes the early stages where a serial killer is ramping up. Is sometimes they let some of their victims go. I think we had another killer like this, didn't we? Who was his, his early killing? Yeah, killings were all his early crimes were just kidnappings, and then he just like graduated. Well, to also there was that murder. boy who got away from William Bonin. Uh, it, one of the California freeway killers, and um, and part of that was William Bonin had just started with rape, and he eventually goes to murder. But uh, in that case, also, the boy uh, had started praying, and William Bonin was, I think, you know, d- you know, somehow, somewhat uh, disquieted by that, or whatever, or, or or at least, you know, there's something where there really is. It, it's not an automatic thing. For very few of these guys. Are they so psychopathic where killing is automatically as easy to them as as anything else? It's usually, uh, you know, we saw that with Peter Curtin, but it's usually a buildup, and they're they're kind of knocking out certain barriers or getting accustomed to certain things. And you know, even though people are hunters, it's not really common for people to hunt each other. Outside of the context of a war, and war kind of changes everything. War becomes its own kind of substitute for this, for you know, all-out war at least for civilization. But in civilization, the act of actually killing someone is a big fucking deal. So even if you are not as emotionally predisposed to care, it's still not going to be something that you necessarily just jump to immediately. And and with a lot of these guys, the killing is adjunctive, or or um, 
you know, a postscript, a coda to the actual fantasy, which is either the, the rape uh, or the, the kidnap or the torture or whatever. Let me say that again. A girl named Celia Van Zanten, also referred to as Melanie Michaels in some sources, left her house to go hitchhike to a convenience store and she never came back. So she shared a house with the three brothers in South Anchorage. Um, she left her house and walked a few blocks to near by B-I-L-O supermarket. So uh, the B-I-I-O super closed at 9pm and she left at 8.30. Witnesses spotted her in the 15 minutes before. Uh, her disappearance was noted a few days later. Yeah, she's... she's um. When you look up a lot of Harrison's victims, they it, it, it was in the early '80s, but she was in 1971, I think. Um, and um, and yeah, December of the 22nd, 1971. Yeah, and and this is a number of Hanson's victims are like this, where the victim was actually um, not shot. That that's I think added to his his mo later. But she's sexually assaulted and then bound with wire restraints and, fr- and left to freeze to death. And I think Hanson, one of the things you see with Hanson that's, I think, very, very cruel is is that is that a number of his victims were either left to be killed by the elements in, in abject loneliness and, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, or they were, you know, dumped in a ravine after being stabbed um, she's she's bound with wire restraints and was found and I think was nude to the waist down before freezing to death. Um, so uh, yeah, so two young men discovered her, James Croppy. She saw he saw her body lying at the bottom of the ravine. They noticed the rigid thing that the blonde hair looked like a person had no clothes on. The white rigid figure was frozen, partially a uh, partially naked corpse. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah. But but as you, so we we suspect actually that she died of hypothermia. Yeah. So it was spruce Her arms had been tied behind uh, by speaker wire. Her head. And her chest had been sh- shredded. Her mouth is open and was hanging down her face. Her her th- th- thighs and genitals were bruised, indicating uh, sexual assault. And obviously, um, semen was found. Yes, yeah, so, is, is, so, well. so was she torn apart by animals, or was that by Hanson? So it's suspected that. With her chest hanging open, she was torn apart by Hansen, and then she tried to climb the ravine and died after he had left. Yeah, it's her very there. difficult to get out of a ravine. Um, yeah, this is this is this is probably Hansen's cruelest murder, I think, honestly. Uh, but you know, uh, just because of the context of it, and 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 just you know the the stabbing and. But 
I mean, in in some ways, you could you could you could look at his later methods as actually cleaning up the situation in a sense because he they when he shoots his later victims, they're instantly killed, and and he you know, but there there's an element where this where you can generally rely on the elements to to take care of someone pretty quickly. Um, you can die of hypothermia quite easily, particularly if you fall in the water. But um, in fact, there's actually a lot of people who are uh, knocked out of boats by giant sturgeon jumping uh, out of the water, and, they're, and it'll knock them out of the boat, and they'll die in the water. Uh, that happens a fair amount um, in, in 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 the far north. But it's it's uh, but so it's very easy to die of hypothermia. Um, you know, and this obviously. You know she's she is she she has no chance after she's dumped in the ravine. I mean, in essence, really, she has no chance because she's in a state park. She's she's once she's taken out to the these remote locations, she doesn't really have a chance at that point. You just you just fight like mad, you know, as long as you can. Eventually, Barbara Phil, the 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 lady who did get away earlier on, would tell the police because she suspected that her bra had been cut by the same knife that opened up this lady's chest. The police didn't really have any leads. They they initially thought it would be easy to solve. They thought about a babysitter, maybe. They actually suspected Gary Ziegler was the another Alaskan serial killer. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm not really... I hadn't heard of him. I'm not really aware of any other Alaskan serial killers other than Robert Hansen. But actually, you know, it's it's the idea of a serial killer would not have been uh, unheard of. It's just that the, it's connecting all these disparate victims in different locations was difficult. I think that actually, this is a, this is if you are a serial killer, this is not a bad location because it's it's it can be remote. There's a wide pool of prostitutes, other vulnerable women. There's that you know, you can you can make the the disappearance happen pretty easily um so it, it 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 isn't really um that surprising that you would have multiple serial killers in alaska so the police actually did have some information provided by barbara field and barbara field the girl who did get away earlier on was actually the daughter of a state trooper but he put her statement as kind of a sealed, like a from a witness that should not be named kind of situation. Yeah, so um, so this is 1972. Yeah, so he, he continues on, you know, this is so he has, he's actually active for quite some time. He's active until 1983. And so he's he's active throughout you know the seventies. He begins his crimes in the sixties, and um, and then obviously in the escalates and is caught in the early eighties. But it you, you can get away with a lot of stuff without really being noticed. But I think I think Hansen was suspected for the Silesia murder uh, coming out of what Barbara yeah. Field had said. So he was under police custody for well. It's- it's kind of like oh, Gary wow. Ridgway was not identified as the Green River Killer for... But he was bailed in on Gary Ridgway was not identified as the Green River Killer for many decades before he was finally uh, officially lab- uh, caught for that. But he was, you know, interviewed by the cops like eight times. You know, he was he was not someone they had com- never considered. It's just they didn't, 
you know, I don't know to what degree it, it uh, you know, what, what, what level of relevance it, it, it has, but the fact that he was a successful baker and ran a local bakery in Anchorage that the cops hung out at, he was a part of the society, that would have been made them more liable to just, you know, give him a slap on the wrist or dismiss him as a as someone being considered for at least you know a an a, an outbreak or a, a you know a whole bunch of crimes but but you know maybe they 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 initially investigated him him for one but i think that he was seen as as a part of the community yeah and in terms of the barber field case she unraveled and, and dropped the charges and the judge, as you say, the judge, you know, was friends with some of Hanson's friends, like the witness testimony. And he was sentenced to five years in the South Central Regional Correctional Facility. And within three months, he became el- eligible for parole. He was never positively linked to the Silesia Van Zanton killing. And he would be back on the streets in, in no time. Yeah, I mean... Um as I said, he's able to he his his uh, his criminal career is actually quite fairly lengthy. Uh, so, um, do you do you have a a, a chronological history of this? Because I had a hard time finding that. Uh, if you do, that's helpful. Yeah. So that was nineteen seventy two. In nineteen seventy three, um, on July the seventh of that year. 17-year-old Megan Emmerich went to town after putting away her laundry and she never came back. The details of a case of few, but uh, Hanson was considered as a suspect. So she was attending a boarding school in Stewart's Skills Centre. Before contacting the police, her roommate conducted a three-day search. Hanson denied killing her to the authorities. But he did admit he was in Stewart on the day Megan vanished, due to due to an you know due to an X on his aircraft map in the Stewart region. Um, you know when he was eventually caught, that's uh, how he was linked to that case. I mean, eventually, uh, what ends up linking him to you know as you know and seeing him as a real serial pattern is the 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 common. Uh, the use of the same model of bullet as proven by the shell casings that were left at the, um, at the, um, near the victim's body, which is just an oversight because, um, uh, hunters tend to leave shell casings near where they have made their, their kill with their gun, with their hunting rifle. And they just don't pick it up because they just neglect to do it. Or if they're more, con- or what becomes a consistent pattern with, with Hanson uh, what that 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 causes people to realize it's the same guy that's that's killing all these women in disparate locations is that they have the same model of bullet found in them and they're the and there're shell casings near the body and um very um particularly conscientious or you know neat freak hunters may clean up their shell casings but it's it's very common in hunting culture to at least leave your shell casings there it's it's not it's not, you know, and not and not retrieve them, or you know, and um, and I don't know if this is a particular case, depending on particular places. But as I mentioned earlier in the episode, Alaska has um, a lot of uh, 
large predatory animals, specifically bears and wolves. And if you leave a kill for an for any amount of time, or you're or you're in the vicinity of a tracking animal any amount of time, that is that is hunting or looking for an opportunistic meal, you could have your kill stolen, and um, and and obviously you don't really want to tangle with these kinds of these kinds of things because. There's an anecdote that Joe Rogan had on his show about hunting in Montana, and he and his friend were just uh, walking up a up a steep incline on a mountain, and behind them they just hear this huge uh, rustle, and then a, a grizzly bear just gallops up the mountain carrying a 1,500 pound elk in its jaws, just galloping up the mountain. You don't you don't want to get that elk and then have the bear decide it's theirs. You want the bear to have it itself. You, if you're making a kill as a hunter, you want to you know, get it, get it, you know, put in, 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 in whatever vehicle you're using, um, and get out of there. So you don't have it claimed by a, a more powerful animal or set of animals. That might be part of it. I don't know, depending on where he was hunting. I don't know if that matters, but they, but in general hunters leave shell casings and other things, you know, they're, they're just, they're, they're focused on, on, uh, on claiming and moving their kill. So, um, uh, so when Hansen uh, started hunting the women, uh, he would use the same gun and the same bullet model, and uh, and they they connected this first by the the shell casings and then by comparing the the shell in in the various victim, victims victims uh, bodies. And Hansen, of course, was a crack shot. He was a prize winning hunter, so he would have hit the same place when he hunted. But he didn't start hunting. He started with you know, the rape and then eventually the, the, the dumping the victims in these remote locations after they have otherwise been violated. He won a prize. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he won multiple prizes as a hunter. And he, he, I think he even won one prize for shooting a grizzly bear. More, although it's more common <clears throat> for bear hunters to shoot black bears because grizzly bears, to some degree, they're protected. I don't think they're protected in Alaska because there's a lot of grizzlies in Alaska and Canada, but certainly they're, they're protected in the lower 48. Uh, grizzlies or coastal brown bears, which is a, a larger variety of a grizzly, they're very, very large and um, and powerful bears, and you would probably be best avoiding them. Uh, black, black bears will get usually several hundred pounds, and not much more than that. Grizzly bears can get to 1,500 or more. So, um, so the thing about it is, is that uh, he was mainly won prizes for shooting various for- kinds of of, um, of deer, uh, you know, various types of deer. But he did win prizes for shooting bears as well. He was an extremely good hunter, and and this is a particular talent that some people have. You know, the son of Sam was a crack shot. It's just a skill that some people have. And it can help to um, to mitigate people's poor self-image. <laughs> to some degree, a gun is an extension of your of your power. Some people have said it's a sort of a phallic symbol, but whatever it is, I think it can it can be a way to equalize um, physical capacity. It's certainly more effective in the hands of a weaker person. You know, a a, a woman or a small man is going to have a better chance in a gunfight than they will. In a in a in a in a in a fist fight against a larger person, so in some ways, actually being able <laughs> to use a gun or some other similar weapon is is that way. 
I think also guns have an element that you see with some sports that you see with golf in some ways where it's like it's focused, it's discipline, it requires success. I mean, not success, it requires a, pra- a practice developing skill, like learning an instrument. It is something that you can that you can that can be a, a way to not just increase your your uh, your power and concentrated force, but to show some level of of uh, of of uh, demonstrated uh, success. Yeah, been wearing blue jeans and a sweater and a brown leather jacket. Might have been a prostitute or or a dancer. I believe that she was known as a Clutinani because she was found on or what is it? Um, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm trying to make it out like you know like we don't know what's going to happen to her, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no, because we're not in sync. But uh, so yeah, so he picked her up downtown and told her he was going to take her to his home. Um, she realized he was not driving direction of her of her home. She first asked him to drive back to Anchorage before he su- unsuccessfully attempted to convince her he was driving to another safe location, claiming he was driving a little further, to which she replied, well, I'm out. Then he attempted to placate her before pulling a gun, saying, you do exactly as, as I say, and you won't get hurt. He drove to the Eklintner lake with his vehicle eventually becoming stuck on a desolate road as he veered in the direction of a muddy swamp. He persuaded Annie to help him wince his pickup free from the mud, although when he began to drive his vehicle free, she attempted to run. In response, he chased her, grabbed her by her hair, and tripped her to the ground. As she struggled, saying, don't kill me, he attempted to placate her by restraining her, falsely claiming he did not want to harm her. She was convinced that he was going to kill her. He then stabbed her once in the back with a black-handled buck knife as she lay face down. Yeah. Um, and she died. I think she was known as a Clutin Annie because her, her remains were not... They couldn't identify her identity. A Clutin is a yeah, so like things like they never identified her. She, because of the way her, her remains were found, she could have yeah. been sixteen or she could have been twenty-five, and she's she's named after the lake. And obviously, Hanson didn't know her name. It's terrible. I it said that you know if you had just had seen that name. And you didn't know any of the background of the, the the location. You'd assume, well, maybe that's a a a some sort of tribal name. And it is it is possible, based on I think when they were examining her body, that she that like a number of these victims, that she could have had partial Inuit ancestry. You know, the the Indians of of that area, uh, particularly associated with with Alaska. But um, but we don't know. Um, there's a lot of people. Perhaps uh, it could be likely that. You know, particularly some of them being um, having that ancestry, uh, who became prostitutes. When we get to um, the uh, little part of uh, of Vancouver in, in British Columbia, that is a kind of a Skid Row type area. In a later episode, um, that, that was mostly um, 
uh, people who were who were uh, members of tribes who they had been alienated from or, or identification had, for, or, methods or had, now than or, they or did had some level of, of when she was I think 1979 uh, or, or various tribes like uh, have major issues with substance issues in America. But the thing is, is that uh, we know no nothing's really known about her. I think if you look her up, uh, she's estimated to have been blonde, uh, but she we don't know what her uh, what her background was. Um, or, or, and, and, um, so, but, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, often when you discover these, but it's very difficult to tell, particularly at this time, you know, maybe we'd have more advanced. So now, now that this is a particular anecdote from, um, you know, so the Hansen's life where the specter of the Madonna Hall complex raises itself again because um, there was a young woman who was actually a local topless dancer she's 24 years old named Jane Joanne Messina I think Messina and uh, he met yeah Joanne you know, Joanne Messina um and he met her on May the 19th, 1980, while she was working in Stewart, Alaska. And she was actually surprisingly receptive to his advances. You know, when most women, you know, did dislike his stutter or his awkward personality, he invited her to have dinner with him. And afterwards, and he's still married, but after those two walked and talked for a while, enjoying each other's company, you know, she smiled as he spoke. When he, she gave him her story, he grew more convinced that she was a decent woman. Back home, she, she was a nursing student, but she was stuck in Stuart with her dog for now. They were camping in nearby woods, and she had been hoping to get a job at, at the fish cannery, a respectable job for a woman just looking for a little companionship in order to afford, you know, the trip back home. He thought that she was that she genuinely liked him. Hanson wondered if he would get this incredible woman to spend the night with him in his camper. Then it all went to hell. Joanne, eager to get back to her life, did offer to go to Hanson's camper, just not in the way he wanted. You know, I don't want to have a job, she said. We could have a real good time if you got some money. Hanson was immediately filled with disgust and anger at the deception. Because obviously, she was thinking that he was a John, but he did nothing and kept on driving until they reached Snow River. Joanne tried to offer her companionship again, but he she would only make things worse. Hansen grew angrier, desire for violence brewing within him. Joanne realized she was in trouble, and now she was stuck in the deep wilderness with a man who suddenly despised her. Like Hansen, she also believed that she had been deceived. In her mind, he had tricked her into coming all the way out here for, to have sex for money, but he no longer wanted to pay. She demanded to be taken back to Stuart. He, he shouted bullshit. His anger rose as far as the f- fucking money goes. Here's all you're worth. He shoved $5 in her face. Uh, they had this angry altercation. Then Hansen caught up to her and bashed her head with a gun. She stumbled, but 
which was still determined to fight back. She lunged at him and clawed his face, but she was no match for his twenty-two caliber revolver. He stood over her body. She was dead. Yeah, one thing is that you see with Hanson is is that he I think he's referred to particularly with some of these um, is is he is even though it's kind of strange because he has this the Madonna whore thing, he does to some degree um, have a, some sort of idealization of the possible uh, experience that, that he could have with them. Uh, I, what, what, you know, when he when he he first lost his virginity, I think when he was in the army, um, and he he complained that the that that you know to a prostitute. I think that was something that was kind of just done in the army, um, and he complained that that woman had um, had been just sort of uh, you know, just a wham bam thank you ma'am type of thing. You know, like it was it was it was it was it was. It was it was all. It was just all business. Uh, no real, you know, no real experience. And he's not one of these guys who's looking for the girlfriend experience in a sense because they they are whores in his mind. But he 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 feel he. I think he feels like, you know, you're you're paying customer. You're 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 owed at least some level of caliber of experience. And he doesn't. And I think also when they have that kind of a. They're that demanding or controlling of the of the terms of the encounter, or the or their or it's just the wham bam thank you ma'am thing. That is another callback to the sense of rejection, uh, and deceit, or you know, or or treachery that he that he associates with, um, with with uh, the girls in his high school. It's very easy for 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 the for the for the burning hatred of those girls to just you know, and 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 the sense of of uh, violation that he associates with his 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 childhood and teenage years to to uh, to to just come bubbling up to the surface like an active volcano. Yeah. So at this time, the police don't have any real leads. Um. And uh, actually, it's a detective called Maxon Farrell who starts to put the pieces together that there might be some sort of serial killer or group of people. But she was in on a police force in the early 1980s in Alaska where women weren't really... They weren't really trusted, uh, both in terms of their competence in the police force. So no one was really listening to her. Um, you know, the structures around her and the police department weren't really supportive of her, as she she stated. And obviously, like a lot of police officers, thought that prostitutes they you know they come to Alaska looking for money and for for Johns, and if they go missing, it's probably because you know they left because they you know they leave these like partial transient lives and and them them going missing isn't really something to to be con- concerned yeah, the about whole, the whole society of alaska at this point is is kind of a trans is, is built around a, a trans transient lifestyles it's not yet having enough of a history and enough of a stable foundation for it to be anything other than that unless you're in some way connected to the inuit tribes uh, it's 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 you know it it's obviously it's 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 less recently a part of the United States to begin with, but 
it's less recently a part of the United States to begin with, but as a, as a, as a practical and functional matter, it's 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 a society that in the 1970s is really as in its early incipient stages because of development. Because I don't think they even had an airport, as I said. You know, when Hansen eventually has gets these small these these sort of mini planes that you fly out over, usually on fishing or hunting trips over lakes, um, that you can land in the in the lake water or whatever. Um, that that that's not uncommon uh, for those who have at least some level of of um, have built some level of foundation in the in the community. But it isn't. It isn't. It, it's not. It's a. Tra- it's not. It's not. Uh, it's it's sort of almost taken for granted that most people are going to be, you know, if it could become transient or are transient to begin with, because it is a, it is still any any kind of hardening of the you know solidifying solidifying of the roots is is in the process of being developed there unless you're part of the Inuit community. Yeah. So for Maxine, in terms of the investigation. Um, it began in the summer of 1980 on July 21st when police got called out for the yeah. uh, so uh, for, for Maxine uh, the investigation really began in the summer of 1980 on July 21st police got a call from the electric workers over at Klukna Annie about a grisly discovery they had made at the worksite clear that she'd been dead for a while but now you know with her with what had happened to her and the and the the way she'd been killed, um, she she recently Detective Farrell recently heard about the woman devoured by a bear over on the peninsula too. Uh, Joanne Messina was found on July the eighth. Alaska uh, was thought to be a really brutal place, but then you also had Roxanne Eslund, known about town as uh, Karen. Um, she was originally from Seattle. She left to go on a date with an unidentified man on June the 28th, and no one had heard about her. She had been reported missing on July the 1st, 1980. Then there was Lisa Fertrell, a 41-year-old woman originally from Hawaii, though she was twice the age of some of her peers. She had made decent, decent living as a dancer. And sort of all of these disappearances... Um, it starts to click into Maxine's head that perhaps, you know, uh, there's a serial killer. She began to take notes um, and um, she put the pictures of the women uh, on a board and started taking information. Um, she was thinking about the similarities in the cases. And there were men who devoted themselves to solving the cases of the disappeared, whom also shared Maxine's suspicions. So Sergeant um, Hasvin, who had been keeping detailed notes, and Officer Greg Barker and Sergeant Glenn um, Flothy, who would both be instrumental in catching the killer. But by and large, the idea that it was a serial killer at this time seemed absurd and, and it was just kind of the purview of some cranks in the police force at this time well yeah it's kind of like how people uh, how people make you know how people have an assumption about anyone who makes any connections between things that they're that they're they're over interpreting they're over <laughs> it's the connectors man the you guys are fucking I mean, insane and it, 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 it often you know sometimes you know you can 
draw connections between things where it's it's not even as much an inference as much as a projection onto it. But when you have a number of these things where there's enough of a pattern of people disappearing or pattern of people being found dead or 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 something that is that is suspicious, uh it makes sense. Um and um also of course sex workers prostitutes have this kind of a there is a little bit of a code uh of looking out for each other and um had at least in the movie uh, about this uh they're, they're, they're you know you know they're pimps i doubt that um it, that that any of the pimps uh could have realistically been played by 50 cent uh, as he is in the movie the frozen ground but um I, I I don't believe that 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 Mr. Scent, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for, I don't know. They were they were pimping pretty hard oh, in yeah. the seventies, well, I mean, maybe maybe some enterprising pimp, you know, went out to Alaska. It's, it's you not don't know. possible. You don't know I mean, there is certainly a money trail in Alaska. There's 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 some capital opportunities. The thing about it is, is simply you just imagine that it would have been more likely that if you were uh, Fifty Cent. And you're interested in making uh, being a he produced the movie too. If you're interested in producing or being in a a um, a movie about a famous uh, uh, true crime case, that maybe it it should be one that takes place in New York City or Chicago or Deep South or something like that. Uh, but you know, I I don't actually know um, the racial composition of, for instance, oil workers who went out there. But I imagine that it was probably. Um, Although you could imagine if you were someone who either who you know, you know, people have say that if you go out to the parts of Montana, there's no racism towards black people there because they've never seen a black person. <laughs> they have no negative association. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, it, it, a lot of the, the racial dynamics in Alaska would have been, you know, there's there's Inuit people. So there's you know, but you know, it's not really. Then there's. Well, I mean, like, there's there's a recent book, apparently, I don't know if this is an onion thing, that um, black people created Stonehenge. <laughs> so if, if we, you know, if we did that, I feel like there was pimps in Alaska that, in the, that, in the that 70s. That sounds like, like a hotel type thing, you know? <laughs> that sounds like, <laughs> and, and, and that sounds like they're saying, well, that's, they did that because there was dancing there. And that sounds like a stereotypical thing. But, um, but... But based on my knowledge of Stonehenge, which is largely taken from the movie This is Spinal Tap, I think that it was that it was it was the children of the, uh, you know, who, who you know, the, which were like dwarves uh, who who danced around the the, the rock of Stonehenge. Uh, but I don't know. I, it, 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 it's it's it, you know one of the funny things, of course, that happened recently was. There was this big brouhaha about the Stonehenge type monuments in uh, Georgia, and there was one of the Republican candidates for governor was saying, "Oh, is it you know this the energy they're channeling these demonic energies from this rock in the state house?" Anyway, uh, they just found that it had a bunch of like it was put up in the seventies by some guy and had a bunch of eight track tapes and a Burt Reynolds catalog and a, and, and a bunch of uh, joints and quaaludes. And I was like, "Now that's a seventies stash I'd like to get," you know. I want those lutes, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's a, that's the one drug that um, that uh, Ronald Reagan managed to stamp out. They got rid of all the, the they found where they were manufactured. Really? Though, 
Yes, they found where they were manufactured and they pretty much destroyed it. That's why there doesn't have quaaludes anymore. I feel like quaaludes were like, were they like just a they, party drug? They were drug? a party drug. I think the effect of them was that they were kind of essentially like a sedative sleeping pill on steroids. Would they sound? Yeah, I mean, like it was like they were yeah. uh, for guys like yeah, Bill I mean, Cosby. I, they were also a party drug, though, because a lot of girls took them at, at, at parties in the 70s. And as we see in The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, the characters played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah oh, Hill yeah, are yeah. fans of them. I know the real life um, uh, character played by Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm trying to remember his name now. Well, Jordan Belfort. Jordan right? Belfort, yes. He was. I saw this clip of him in an interview, and he said that he had been sober for decades off of everything, but that... And he was going to remain so, but that if you offered him quaaludes, in spite of that, he'd take them in, all of them in an instant. That's how good they were. That that I think they sounded like a combination between like a, a ambient type uh, sedative hypnotic and some sort of you know had some sort of uh, ecstasy style stimulant property. They sounded they sounded unbelievable. <laughs> now, if they were just like a really high powered sedative hypnotic, I'd take that. Ambient when I was first taking it was incredibly. Incredible, incredibly, you know, wonderful. Uh, but uh, at least I found. Um, but um, but I don't know. I think I think that they were they were used as date rape drugs, and that's one of the reasons people wanted to get rid of them. And and certainly they are very dangerous when combined with other compounds, you know, alcohol, um, and, and uh, large amounts of alcohol, and uh, and and you never can estimate just how much it'll take with some of these drugs in combination with everything else to cause an overdose. So yeah, I, th I think that there was a danger of them, uh, but but they found that they were that they were uh, at this one particular um, um, location. I think one particular uh, warehouse that it was being made in, and they and they shut it down. It's the one victory uh, for Reagan. Of course, I don't really buy that Reagan's really actually interested in getting rid of drugs as long as they could power the stock market, and they did. Actually, in some ways, uh, Quaaludes did, but they were also... Yeah, because you know, it seems like a quite a bourgeois, bourgeois drug. John Belford's line reminds me of my line that, um, that you know, I'd, I'd never, you know, if I ever offered weed, I'd never take it. But anytime there's cocaine around, you know, it's a yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I that makes and that makes some sense. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, some people just really like weed, but in general, it's not, you know... Uh, it, it, I, I mean, some people have a particular, yeah, Too much some, people, some people have a particular attachment to certain compounds. As I said, I, 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 for some reason, Ambien really, I loved, but benzodiazepines, you know, I took Valium was, it didn't have any effect really. And, uh, for whatever reason. And then also, God, what was the, what's the. What's the line to the podcast about our drug thing? I don't know. Which. Uh, I forget and what the connection oh, is. Uh, uh, I was just talking about it was Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah, oh, Stonehenge. This, was, okay. this was a um, this went from a tangent to a, a just an avenue off into somewhere else. Um, and and uh, and I, I I guess all I would say is is that if they manufacture quaaludes again, uh, I I you know I I will become a I will I will get in I will with the inevitable return of disco I will get back I will become a disco guy just to get the quaaludes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I, but anyway no I mean that would be that would be kind of funny if if we ever had a return of disco. 
It's funny, like, you go back to this period, like, of this, all this, like, anti-disco yeah. stuff. And, like, I, I was wearing, like, a Prince shirt from the, the 1979 album. It's like, if I was back then, I would have had, like, a fucking Jerry Curl. <laughs> I probably would have hated, hated like, classic yeah. rock, you know. I don't know. But, but uh, anyway, to, to continue, uh, so in 1983 in Anchorage, uh, Sydney Paulson, she had been walking downtown in Anchorage, walking the streets of the Tenderloin district when a familiar car drove by. Uh, with mild irritation, she recognized the car as a John who had made an appointment with her for the previous day, but she'd not bothered to show up. The man told her he wanted a blowjob and was willing to pay her $200 That's for high, it. High level she said, like, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's in yeah. <laughs> 1980? I mean, even even with the seventies inflation, yeah. that's crazy. Two hundred dollars for wow. So she was street smart. She had enough experience for an alarm to go off in her mind. Two hundred dollars was a lot of money for a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> She's thinking like me. She figured out she was looking for something else. She figured out he he was looking for something else. Still, she really needed the money. That's why she got in, despite his suspicions. It was a decision. She would instantly regret he pulled up to a nearby parking lot and had her get down to business. He was getting close to finishing when he grabbed her by the neck and yanked her up by her hair with a gun to her face. He told her he was taking her to his house and she'd better behave. He had to he had tried to reassure her that he wasn't intending to harm her. He gripped her by the arm, he holding on to her tightly as he led her downstairs to the basement. The sight that greeted her when he switched on the lights was in her frightened state almost surreal. From all four walls hung decapitated animal heads, their glass eyes wide but lifeless. This man liked to kill things, she realized. From the looks of all the trophies and mounted heads, he was apparently quite good at it too. Her heart raced as he handcuffed her and pulled the chain around her neck. He attached the other end to a pillar along the wall, her restraint was just long enough to get her to reach a bearskin rug on the floor where he forced her to get down. He raped her for what seemed like hours, forcing himself on her both vaginally and angrily. At one point, he had even shoved a hammer inside her. When it was over, even he seemed exhausted. He got up to get her a towel to urinate on and turned on the television for her to watch while he slept on the couch behind her. Seeing no way of knowing how long he had slept for, she remained on the rug, tired and aching while he tried to, to remain calm. While she tried to remain calm. It proved to be difficult with him so close, ready to grab her at any time. She took a closer look around the room, past the mounted heads and the hanging skins, and saw Paul Q leaning against the table. Briefly, she considered taking the thing and using it to kill the man, but it was quickly abandoned the idea. If she messed up, he'd get angry, and if he got angry... She heard him stare, causing her to jump. He stood beside her and looked up at him, hoping he was satisfied. He was not a dangerous-looking man on the surface. He was thin and wore thick horn-rimmed glasses that seemed to emphasize the scared texture and narrowness of his face. The slicked-back way he wore his hair made her think of an awkward teenager. He even had a stutter, making him the perfect image of a total nerd. Nobody who saw him would find him intimidating. Since Cindy had been in the business long enough to know that looks could be deceiving to her dismay, he informed her that he was he was not done with her yet. 
Um, so he, he he told her he was going to fly you to my cabin, he said, as he got her to climb into the back seat. She was made to p- protest as she, he threw a blanket over her and shut the door. I'm going to treat you special. Once at the airport, he parked the car by his small airplane. He, she heard him step out and open the the trunk. It seemed like he was moving something to the super cub. Struggling, she managed to look out from beneath the blanket and saw that he had left the driver's door open. He was far away enough that only his legs were visible. This was her chance. In one swift jump, she was out of the door and sprinting down the gravel road. I'm going to get you, he shouted as he gave chase. Knowing he had a gun made her run even harder, but she couldn't outrun him for long in her condition, no matter how much adrenaline she had. There was nowhere to hide from him. He was just too close to be outmaneuvered, even among the maze of cars in a lot she tried to cut through. Then in the distance, she saw something. A truck was headed her way down the road. Sydney streaked, desperate to get the driver's attention. She was ready to jump into the vehicle the instant the driver hit the brakes. The chase had left her totally out of breath when her saviour later identified as Robert Yont asked what happened. She could hardly get the words out. Take me to the Big Timber Motel, she managed to say. We also go to the police station, said Yont. Yeah, this is uh, Cindy so Paulson she got away. is the one who, <laughs> reference once again, the movie uh, The Frozen Ground is played by Vanessa Hudgens, uh, and uh, obviously the one who gets away. Every now and then you have this as a sort of um, either something that brings about the downfall of the killer or something just a, a, a silver line to the story, but... Um, it's actually, I think it's often the case with these, you know, it's always the case with these types of things. It shows some level of of uh, gumption and guts and uh, and at least awareness uh, to be able to maintain your 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 uh, your your uh, presence in the moment to be able to uh, to take the opportunity and run for it. And obviously, she she got uh, uh, fortunate a bit that there was someone coming. But one thing I think that this particular also with this is that I don't think it's any coincidence that he keeps her and some, I, I think some other victims when he's holding them in the, in the room where he has all the taxidermy. I think there's this, another way in which I think he's similar to Gacy is the locations of places is important to him sort of psychologically. In Gacy's case, it was the, the, the psychodynamic uh, relevance of the, the structure of the house the 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 attic being where he kept secret things, and crawl space being his, you know, uh, disturbed like uh, um, unconscious where he puts these these things to keep them out of sight, out of mind. The garage where he tortures people like his father, uh, you know, abused him. I think you know. I I, th- I think that 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 the fact that she is there, the 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 animal heads are kind of a testament to his to his power and dominion as the victorious hunter and that the proof of his victory, the proof of his conquest is, 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 uh, forever preserved. Kind of like we've talked about the camera, how the camera does that, the celluloid canvas in our first episode. Um, the, that his, that the, his, his status as the victor and, 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 and with all these, 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 uh, trophies, um, and we know serial killers take trophies, so and and he has in a certain way made a forged a connection between his hunting of animals and his killing of prostitutes. 
I think that it's significant, and it's also it's psychological warfare in some ways because he's keeping her there. He's 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 showing her his nature, his true nature, his true self in this place that has all his trophies of his kills as a hunter. It's kind of a grim uh, prefiguring of what he's going to do to her if, if it all goes according to plan, and thankfully she gets away. But it's also it's it's that it's important that the key part of this, which is the abduction and the rape, is done in in the room with all these trophies and proof of his status as the as the victor and 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 the winner, and then uh, and the master of the of the domain, uh, and then the, she can look around and see all this stuff and you know. However, she processes it. I think. I think. I think that this is his place. That is, the kind of the repository, and and the locus for his 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 proof of mastery, and dominion in his own life. The external being an extension of his internal uh, pacification. So, uh, March the twenty fifth, nineteen eighty three dancer Teresa Watson 22 was seen in Anchorage she informed her roommate that she would meet a man who would give her $300 in exchange for an hour or two of company at Scenic Lake Hanson abducted her and killed her Hanson was was unable to bury her since the earth in the region was still frozen he abandoned her where she had died she was discovered on May the 17th 1984 Um, uh, um, so is this, uh, is this in the middle of his spree or, I mean, he, there, she's found in 1984. Yeah, towards the end. He's, a, he's apprehended in 1983. So it makes yeah. sense that he'd find some of the victims later. Cause Cindy was, Cindy was in 1983 and, uh, Teresa was also in 1983. She was actually a little bit earlier, but uh yes and so is it this time where people like throw the uh the investigator yeah. is gathering evidence again yeah, further yeah and um um in 1982 and 1983 he's he's gathering evidence he's thinking about this um so and and he's starting to believe that there must be a serial killer um, on the loose in Anchorage picking up vulnerable people the most disposable people in the city and he contacts the behavioral science division at Quantico about this yeah um, I, I, it was a really I think very good idea of him to bring them on and it also I think was good of them to not just dismiss this as something happening in the in the boonies um, and I think it also shows to some degree, the the growing uh, status of the behavioral um, science unit, uh, because uh, you know, which as we've talked about, they kind of emerge on the scene in the Edmund Kemper and Jerry Brudos cases in the late sixties, early seventies. But it's it takes them a long time to get really the acceptance of particularly the Federal Bureau of Investigation internally, but also the various law enforcement departments, who like some in the FBI would have seen what they do as wooey woo and not particularly grounded police work, but also like these guys coming from the feds trying to come in and, and, uh, but they always uh, made sure to, to say, well, we're just, you know, we're just consultants. We're not, the, this is your investigation. Um, 
John Douglas um, uh, personally went up to uh, Anchorage to help them with the investigation, as he would also go up to uh, to the Seattle area to help find the Green River Killer, uh, although he was not successful in that. But the thing was is that it wasn't just him, though. It, they had a report on uh, on a, pro- a profile based on um, you know the some of the information given to them by Glenn Flothy and the other cops and some of whatever investigation they did. It wasn't just John Douglas. It was also Roy Hazelwood, the sex crimes guy at the FBI, who we brought up in the DeBartle Layman episode. Um, John Douglas, nothing to take away from him at all. Um, I've cited Mindhunter. I read Mindhunter. He's he's he, you know he's the real deal. But so is Robert Ressler. So is uh, Bill Hogmeyer. So is Roy Hazelwood and a number of other people. Um, right, uh, Simeon. Could you say? Could you say that again? Again, because I'm moved. It's like the twentieth time. Uh, but uh, okay, so John Douglas is um, nothing to take away from John Douglas at all. But uh, he this this was the profile that the behavioral uh, science unit contributed on the request of Glenn Flothy and the other investigators in Alaska. Uh, John Douglas went up to Anchorage himself to help with the investigation. So he was on was on purpose, not on purpose. I was in person helping them. Um, as he did go up to uh, the Seattle area to help try on the Green River Killer, and he's been to other places, but the, he wasn't able to find the Green River Killer at the time. Um, but the thing was, but he was helped to find Hanson. The profile was not just written by John Douglas. It was also written in conjunction with Roy Hazelwood, the sex crimes guy, who I brought up in the DeBartle Bit episode. Uh, and it is worth noting that some people say that John Douglas takes a little bit too much credit for the uh, collaborative efforts of that, you know, prodigious efforts of, the, of that whole team. My view is that Douglas is the genuine, he's the real deal, but he is, he is certainly one of many. He is, um, he and Bob Ressler are the two most famous guys. Ressler, of course, was the guy who worked particularly with Gacy. Uh, Ressler was the basis for the older uh, detective in, in, in Mindhunter and, and Douglas for the younger detective. But there's also Bill Hagmeyer, um, who is played by Elijah Wood in the movie uh, No Man of God, which is, I think, one of the better uh, American true crime movies, uh, uh, the best depiction of Ted Bundy that I've seen by an actor, but also <clears throat> uh, Roy Hazelwood, who was the sex crimes guy who who uh, was, I think, particularly the guy that, that had to deal with some of the more difficult material who codified their view of sexual sadism. He was a big part of writing, of writing this profile. <coughs> as well as, as John Douglas. And it is noteworthy how the uh, behavioral science unit did get some early profiles wrong. They completely missed on BTK. They had no idea that the guy they were profiling would have been a family man, let alone the, the president of his church. <clears throat> and, they, they, you know, but John Douglas had had some success with figures a bit like Hanson. Um, they profiled Hanson as... Um, as not, he's not going to be an itinerant uh, worker. He's going to be uh, a a local business owner. He's going to have low self esteem. He's going to be a successful hunter. Uh, he's going to have a very religious wife. Uh, there are all these different things they profiled. Um, I think he might have even seen that. Maybe he might have. He might have pockmarks. The I don't know what particular um, reason he assumed Hanson stuttered. But it's worth noting that John Douglas had had a successful profile previously 
with a trailside killer, David Carpenter, who also had a stutter. And David Carpenter uh, targeted women largely in California. And in fact, he targeted women uh, particularly on Mount Tamalpais in the Bay Area, which my parents used to hike on all the time, around that same time. And now David Carpenter would not have targeted them because he targeted women on their own, not women with a baby and a husband with them. But uh, because he was in, I guess he has to say he's a pussy, I guess like Robert Hansen, who never took on anyone his own size. You know, I was, uh, the name of this episode, I was going to call it The Most Dangerous Game after the um, famous book about the big game hunters who end up at a on an island run owned by this guy and, and the hunters become the hunted. And in a sense, that's what happens here in that, in that to Hansen, he is the hunter who, he, he, you know, the hunters are these, these horrible, you know, exploitative women who, 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 who murder your, your ego and then you hunt them. But it's, I don't think there's any evidence he really, he, he, um, he actually did that. If anyone who actually was hunting the most dangerous game, they'd be going off and hunting Kodiak bears or polar bears, or they'd be dressing up as a bear and hunting people with, you know, just in their, in their bear outfit. You know, it's not, but you couldn't operate a gun that way. You know, in many ways, these 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 crimes are very controlled and very deliberate and meticulous, but they're also in no way brave. You know, you have a guy who's, you know, with a gun hunting these women on their own, obviously not saying any murder is brave, but, you know, it's it, it is a particularly craven uh, calculated series of murders. And um, so, you know, um. I don't remember where we were. Yeah, you're talking about hunting and oh yeah, Hazelwood. Roy Hazelwood, uh, Roy Hazelwood was one time. of you know what I'm saying is the behavioral science unit profiled Hansen perfectly uh, based on the information about the case they got from the from Frothy and the and other investigators and also maybe from whatever John Douglas gathered at the scene, but uh, but. There was an instinct on some, on the part of some, not necessarily flothy, but on the part of some that, well, is it maybe this is a series of kills that's unrelated. You know, there's a lot of prostitutes that eat a lot of Johns. It's a dangerous business. It's an unsavory business. Maybe this is someone who's traveling in an itinerant worker. But flothy, I think, and, of course, later in the profile by Douglas and the behavioral science team, saw this guy as a local business owner. This guy is part of the community. This guy has self-esteem issues. He's got a stutter. He's got a religious wife, so he has this, this, the, the, you know, the Madonna at home and the whores on, you know, elsewhere, and he, and you know, he's he's assertive in some ways and not in other ways. He's going to be a very good hunter, and and I and and, and I, that's just really good inductive reasoning, on the basis of of uh, analyzing the evidence, and uh, and it's interesting that they do show an interest in this. Because, as I said, Alaska is and Hawaii are out of the way. They're they're only officially a part of the United States. When we think of the United States, we think of the contiguous states. And when you go up to Alaska, you really are like going. You may as well be going to Russia. You're going to another another country uh, with a different with their own way of doing things. There's not a lot of commonalities in the in the experience of life in in Alaska and the rest of the United States. In fact, maybe. One of the only things is that hunting and fishing is prevalent everywhere, but uh, it is its own, you know, but the thing was, is that, the, is that one of the reasons that the BSU takes off at this point and, you know, is because they recognize that 
there is a real phenomenon of these kinds of crimes exploding in this period, and it's something we need to keep an eye on. And if we want to prevent these things happening in the future, it doesn't really matter where something happens. It more matters why it's happening, how we respond to it, and how we use it to predict other things. Because you can take information from this case and apply it to cases that have nothing to do with Alaska, you know, uh, or even have to do with hunting and anything like that. And, you know, because Robert Hans is a pretty typical displacement killer. He's a pretty typical grievance collector. He's a pretty typical, uh, you know, murderer of prostitutes. So, yeah. Yeah, so... Robert Hansing actually had a way of covering you're, you're, you're cutting out of me, so. uh, Sorry, give yeah. me one second. Yeah, so Robert Hansen, yeah, can you yeah, hear me? Or? Yeah, so Robert Hansen had a particular way of covering his tracks. Um, when it comes to, to chasing hookers, he, he had a friend, um, oh, hold on and a second. he would hold on a second. tell it's, it's his Issue, close other Riverside browser tabs. This can cause recording issues. I, I don't think I have any other open, any others open, but... I'm not okay. getting that. Well, there's I'm it's, not getting so that. still recording, so, it's so probably it's, it seems to be okay. Yeah, so... Uh, Robert Hansen, uh, you know, when it came to, to chasing hookers, he set up an alibi with his friend and one of his neighbors called John Henning and told, uh, so, and just said that he was with him. Um, so the two men worked out the details over breakfast at a nearby cafe. According to their story, Hansen had been with his friend's house fixing an airplane seat from midnight to dawn and therefore could not have been anywhere near the Merrill Airfield. The two men worked out the details of breakfast. Um, and so, but, you know, the, you had the Cindy Paulson uh, altercation and she had told the cops and the cops were waiting for him at his house for questioning. He kept his call through the questioning. Um, and, uh, you know, they looked through the house. They, they found a stash of guns behind a force panel in the basement but you know he's a hunter so um there's not much they could do with that and to make matters worse sydney wasn't having the hot easiest time with the police she had been asked to take a lie detector test which she refused and greg baker you know almost closed the case uh, because of it Uh, in 1983 the body of another woman was found uh, decomposed and this is happening at the same time that um, Fothi's investigation with the FBI is, is, go- is going on as well but Fothi starts to take information about Robert Hansen did you have something about the discovery of shell casing somebody um well I, I i only heard about it and read about it i don't have uh any particular i think it was they the same i think what it was is that several of the victims that he shot uh, when they were found the same uh shell casings were found near the body and and also the same uh it, it connected to that 
connected to that, the same uh, bullet was found. Sorry about that. The same bullet was found in the um, in the. Uh, one second. The same bullet was uh, the same model of bullet was found uh, in in the victim's body, and pretty much always right through the heart. I mean, Hanson, as I said, was a crack shot. He was a really good shot as as a, as a hunter with a rifle, and part of his use of the hunting. As I said, I think part of it is extending his control, extending the fantasy, uh, creating this, this, uh, this um, irresistible uh, command infrastructure where the victim then does something, and then that gives him further permission, and and they 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 do something, but they can't possibly win. But I think the other reason is is that it's an easier it's a way easier way to get the thing done. Some of these women, he he just shoots because they're begging for their lives. And some of them, I think he just shoots, well, just, let's just finish this whole thing up. Because in the end, the killing is the coup de grace. The hunting, a process, part of the, pro, I mean, the you know, the, the primary um, psychological uh, function of the crime is, it, you know, the primary is, is in, in the abduction, uh, holding the victim and the rape. And I think primarily Hansen is a rapist. Yeah, so they found the 22, um, the 22-3 caliber shell casings, as you stated, and they made the connection with the Sherry Moreau case. Before this case, uh, both this case, the Sherry Moreau case and some other cases had the same shell casings, as you said. Glenn Furthy was, was, was thinking about this, he'd and um, he, and then he'd been working with the FBI. Yeah. So, the, is, are they sort of starting to um, zero in on Hanson? Are they starting to zero in on, on on the prey for their hunt, or is this? Are they still have a little ways to go? No, they're starting to zero in on Hanson. Is this is this this around the time uh, that the Paula Golding thing happens, or we've we already done that? So the you mean the Paula Golding killing? Yeah, um, she was she was um, she was discovered in the Knick River in a shallow grave um, on September second, nineteen eighty three, um, and um, one of the things that he he does, and I think that this this may have predated his. Uh, um, and she was thrown out in the in the aircraft. Um, he and he makes her uh, leave uh, after threatening or shooting her because I think that the whole thing of the victim running is a huge part of this at this point. Um, but uh, he one thing also he does that's kind of macabre is in her case and several others is that he makes them run nude. Uh, and then he shoots them. And this is, I guess, an added point of degradation. But this is also kind of reducing it to the level of they're like an animal being hunted. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, but she was a dancer, 30 years old uh, in Anchorage. Um, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great anecdote. And so, Fothi uh, had gathered more evidence to his hands his previous criminal and psychiatric records in October, he met with Christy Hayes, 
whose experience with Hansen seemed to echo certain details from the Pawson case. He met with Robert Yant, the driver who picked Cindy Pawson up and likely saved her life. More interesting was the record of a burglary at Hansen's house. In early 1983, Robert Hansen reported his hunting trophies stolen and his insurance company paid out a relatively substantial amount of money. It had been enough for Hansen to use to open up his own bakery, yet there was a problem. The animal heads, they were still there. Sidney Paulson saw them when she was trapped in his basement. The cops who searched his house saw them too. They had even taken pictures. Had Hansen committed insurance fraud? It was enough for law enforcement to obtain a second search warrant. Towards the end of the year, the cops arrived at Hansen's house. Wait, oh, I can I'm hear sorry. you typing. I, I, I was typing. Sorry. sorry um, I can, I can. M- mute, mute your mic, and okay. you know you probably searched something. Just mute your mic. So the animal heads, they were still there. Cindy Paulson saw them when she was trapped in his basement. The cops who searched his house saw them too. They had even taken pictures and Hansen committed insurance fraud. It was enough for law enforcement to obtain a second search warrant. Towards the end of the year, the cops arrived at the Hansen household and met Dara Hansen. Not only was she home, but so were her children and Edna Hansen, who had been visiting her son. They couldn't help but feel sorry for the woman and the two children. The kids cried as the cops searched the house. After an extensive search of the place proved fruitless, the whole operation almost came to a halt until one officer thought to head upstairs. Deep within the pink installation in the attic, they found some startling items. A golden arrowhead necklace, a custom-made fish charm. There were even an aviation map with quite a few strange X's over it. It was Fothy who would eventually suggest that these might be graves. I saw the house... Joanne Henning, wife of John Henning, who had given him the alibi, approached the scene. She had come after a mutual friend, Hanson Hyde, to fix his car, failed to get a hold of him. Reluctantly, she spoke with the police and realized that her husband had lied to cover up something far more sinister than his friend's affair with a prostitute. She called her husband, and in the face of the new evidence, John Henning came clean. So his, his alibi fell apart. Meanwhile, Fothy and another trooper connected some of the 21 X's on the map to locations where bodies had been discovered. If these really were grave markers, then Hansen was responsible for far more than just a handful of crimes. The case ran in... Uh, just, did you just know the case that I, ran, we cut off for about two minutes? Yeah, I'm sorry. We? I just sent you a direct message. Don't, the, the, don't. The, the recording stopped. and the. Did you... Did you call out? And then I, I had to click out and then got back in. And it's recording. I think, I think, I think, uh, I don't know. I think, I think you falling out. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm going to want to check the recording. The recording because you falling out is a little bit more. Tasty than me falling out. I don't know how that because how that happened, obviously, obviously my recording. It was going. It was going on for my, about hours and forty minutes, and now we're in another one. This then about one. No, so yeah, so uh, mine still says two hours and forty-eight minutes. 
We were at three and a half um, minutes before the first time where we had to we we opened the browser. Yeah, but see, so, so the thing is, like, I've I've got so my mine hasn't okay. dropped out at all, and then this is not some this is not about my self efficacy or whatever. It's like today, mine okay. hasn't dropped out at all, and I also have my own external recording okay. of myself that I can legitimately use for myself. But if you've fallen out, I got to check the recordings to, sh- to see that there isn't any problem with your mic, um, which is stress. But I feel like, Oh, Simeon. Why is it why does it sound like he's in? So, uh, meanwhile, Fothi and another trooper connected some of the 20 X's on the map to locations where bodies had been discovered. If these really were grave markers, then Hansen was responsible for far more than just a handful of crimes. The case ran into trouble when Fothi struggled to track down Sidney Paulson again. Women who worked the streets tended to use different names, even when they were living transient lives. Eventually, he managed to find her under a different name from a massage parlor to a motel room with her pimp. She agreed to testify. Another piece of the case came together. Hansen was not prepared to break so easily. He continued to deny the allegations when brought in for questioning. He hides an attorney. The officers offered to bring Hansen along on a helicopter ride to identify locations on the map. Hansen agreed, and while out in the wilderness, the baker seemed to become a different person. He was a hunter again, inspecting the area carefully, his senses keen for what he was searching for. It was almost as though the search excited him. The bodies of Tammy Patterson, Sue Lunna, and Laylee Larson were located by the Kink River within a day. By the end, they had uncovered more than a dozen bodies there who were 
some women he confessed who had who they would never be able to find out of all the bodies found he would only be charged with the murders of Lunta, Annie, Joanna Messina, Sherry Monroe and Paula Gordon. On February 18th, 1984, Robert Han- Christian Hansen was sentenced to 461 years plus life in the prison for assault, kidnapping, theft, insurance fraud, murder and rape. He would spend the rest of his life in Spring Creek, Creek Correctional Facility in Stewart until his death from natural causes on August the the 21st, 2014, he was 75 years old.